This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning, everyone. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Once again, Dr. Mattless. But uh, as always, I'm joined here with Terry South. My name is Jeff Simpson. Is he self-diagnosing himself? Is this this the I'm a doctor thing again? He is a doctor. Well, not that kind of doctor, though. (laughs) He's more of the touchy-feely, I'll listen to you and coddle your ego sort of doctor. Speaking of doctors, he probably needs a doctor because he is not feeling well. Or he is pulling another Ferris Bueller on us this morning. Uh, We're also joined here this morning by Sean O'Neill, who's running the board for us and who is just an all-around stand-up guy. Bueller. Kiss up. (laughs) Bueller. (laughs) All right. Terry, you're an all-around stand-up guy, too. And not just because you're standing up, literally. Yeah. So, anyway, we're going to have some fun today, even if Dr. Matt, who is a real doctor, uh, won't be here this morning. Not the kind of doctor he needs right now. But is it, that's right. I mean, yeah. that's like saying, what, isn't that like saying President Elect Trump is a real president? He will be. He will be. Will be once okay. he takes the oath. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, today is December seventh, and you probably that date probably rings a bell because this is Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day, and uh, the history of Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day is the history of the attack itself. An attack which took place on December 7th in 1941. The attack was devastating, killing over 2,400 citizens of the United States from the time it began at 7.48 a.m. Hawaiian time and ended just 90 minutes later, making the attack incredibly devastating. Celebrating Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day is your opportunity to show your support for those veterans who are still alive from the Pearl Harbor bombing and pay your respect to those who give themselves in service to our country and its security every day. 1941. Yeah, I was actually there last year. Really? Yes, my our family oh. vacation last year was a was a cruise and we went to Hawaii and uh we spent half a day in ha- in uh in Honolulu and went to uh the memorial. It's a very sacred place. Absolutely. And uh very solemn. Uh, they ask you to be quiet actually when you're on yeah, on the actual memorial, and it is there. There is still oil bubbling up from the Arizona to yeah. this day. We did get to go to the Arizona. I want to say it was a couple of summers ago, and yeah, you you mentioned it. Very, very solemn, very quiet. People were very respectful. So, yeah, it was very humbling to be there. And you know, speaking of tragic events, we're we're getting some news that uh, a flight that a Pakistan flight. Um, crash did not make its destination, and uh, I think we're still waiting for details on whether or not there are any survivors. But I do believe they have pictures online already. Terry, do you do you happen to know any updates on that story? Just what you read there. Okay. Well, our our thoughts and prayers go out to uh, to those who may have been on the flight and, and their families and and loved ones as well. So just keep them in your thoughts and prayers. On a lighter note, today is also. Cotton Candy Day. Sean, Terry, do either of you indulge in cotton candy? Nope. Uh, no. My kids do. <laughs> you 
You know, I'm I'm, go- I'm, I'm a diabetic, so it's oh, kind of okay. difficult for me. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm going to share a little uh, tidbit about cotton candy. It, there there is some joy that can still be had from cotton candy, even if you don't want to eat it. And it's not quite on the level of popping uh, bubble paper. But if you just take water or juice or any kind of liquid, really, and pour it over cotton candy, it's just fun to watch it dissolve instantly. I kind of liken it to eating a, a, a Krispy Kreme donut. They just they, – they have the consistency of cotton candy where they just instantly dissolve, and that's not my kind of donut. Okay. I'm not hungry or anything. Mm. Anyway, Cotton Candy Day, we'll be talking more about that and uh, having some more fun on the show. But first and foremost, let's head on over to Sadie Nielsen, who's got just a few days left with us. And uh, she's going to be giving us the news around the country. Sadie, what's going on? White supremacist Richard Spencer on the Texas A&M campus drew protesters in an armed riot police Tuesday night. Spencer, who recently drew attention for invoking Nazi rhetoric at a meeting at the National Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., was scheduled to speak for a several dozen people on Tuesday. Students and activists gathered outside the event in protests where they were met by police in full riot gear. Social media posts from the event show police in helmets and riot shields pushing protesters backwards out of a campus building. Some protesters made it inside the room where Spencer was speaking, leading to verbal clashes between protesters and event attendees. A refrigerator might have started the deadly fire in Oakland's ghost ship warehouse, the fire which broke out Friday night, killing at least 36. The building was a home to a community of artists and was reportedly crowded with art supplies and not up to fire code. A criminal investigation into the blaze began Sunday. During the investigation, neighbors told firefighters that the warehouse owners had recently installed a refrigerator, suggesting that the fire might have begun in the building's electrical system, the New York Times reported. Police arrested a man allegedly making terrorist threats while carrying a gas can and matches outside New York City's Rockefeller Center on Tuesday afternoon. Yuri Alterman, 38, was reportedly carrying the book Son of Hamas at the time of his arrest. Police do not believe he has any terror connections. I don't have a car. I just bought the gas from a station on 10th Avenue, Alterman told police. He allegedly told police that he was just walking around the city. And finally, yes. in your catch of the day news, mm. a North Carolina man has reeled in a catfish that weighed a staggering, drum roll please, 112 pounds. Just five pounds short of the state record. This catfish is 112? 112 pounds. That is literally the size of a small child. Ryan Brewington said he spent about 30 minutes last week battling with the massive fish at the end of his line. And it's called the Cape Fear River. He found a 112-pound catfish in the Cape Fear River. <laughs> this makes me think of either the movie Cape Fear or Robert, Robert Shaw in Jaws. Oh, yeah. You're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah. He didn't realize how big it was, he said, until he stuck his hands underneath it and lifted it out, but almost fell over as he tried to lift it out. So, See, was, he could... do, was he doing that special fishing where you, you, you oh, put hooking? your hand? Yeah. Yeah. Terry and I were talking about oh, that okay. the other day. No, I don't know. I don't think he was. I think he actually tried to use an actual line. Yeah, this fish would have eaten him whole, yeah. so he couldn't stick yeah. his arm down him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Wow. So, very large catfish. Mm. Um, congratulations to him for catching it. I can't believe that he caught it. Is catfish good? 
Anybody had catfish? Yeah, they're bottom feeders, so it can it can taste a little funky. Yeah, but it doesn't taste like cats. No, no. not like because I do not like, like the taste of cats. Since I've never tasted a cat, and hopefully we don't have any animal activists listening. <laughs> I have never had cat before. <laughs> Disclaimer on the Matt Townsend show. <sighs> anyway, thank you, Sadie. That what a what a fun story, and all of those are good too. All right, we'll we'll catch up with Sadie the next hour. But we do have some really interesting news. In addition to Sadie's news, uh, Donald Trump, grateful to be named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. He called it a great honor, as he talked on the Today Show this morning. He, um, what he wasn't sure, the cover reads, Donald Trump, President of the Divided States of America. That's, That's what the cover says. The cover of Time Magazine. Hmm. It says, um, he told Matt Lauer this morning, he complained, however, in typical Trump fashion, that he found the word divided to be snarky in the magazine's choice of the headline. So, um, Isn't that basically their way of saying, yeah, we, there's no way we're not going to give it to you, but we're not happy about it? Well, no. What what they do with that, I mean, I think Hitler has been on the cover before. I think he yeah. was a person of the, you know, the, it's not necessarily a good reason to be there or a bad reason to be there. It's your influence. Yeah. You know, what is your impact on the year? And that's why they do that. It's not a, you know, you're the, the greatest person or they, they try to do some, and I guess we, we heard on the BBC, they read the last line of the article and it was kind of like, what was that? Was that a positive or a negative or yeah. just kind of an interesting uh, way to end it? Play clip four. This is uh, – they asked Trump about his Twitter usage. No, I think I am very restrained, and I talk about important things. I talked about, you know, as you know, recently China and the fact uh, we talked about their devaluation. We talked about their building this massive military fortress in the middle of the South China Sea, which they're not supposed to be doing, and other things. And frankly, it's a modern day form of communication. Between Even when you're picking Facebook, fights with Matt, it? Between Facebook and Twitter, I have, I guess, more than 40 million people. And that's a modern day form of communication. I get it out much faster than a press release. He, they asked him about how he picks fights with Saturday Night Live. And if you don't like it, why do you keep watching it? Why do you keep bringing attention to it? And he goes, with the way they're doing that show, it's not going to last that long. I'm like, I think it will last long because... He keeps drawing attention to it. So people are going to want to jump out and maybe see those clips, watch the show, and then see how he's going to respond. And It turns into a soap opera of itself. Oh, Donald. So Doesn't Donald... he know that the, f- the first step in getting help is admitting you have a problem? <laughs> it seems like he just can't help himself but watch Saturday Night Live every Saturday. <sighs> Speaking of Twitter, yesterday after the show, I go sit down at the computer, and there's a video of him walking through Trump Tower talking about Boeing and their four – well, he calls calls it the four billion dollar contract to build Air Force One. So this is clip play clip one. This is him in Trump Tower. Well, the plane is totally out of control. It's going to be over four billion dollars. It's for Air Force One program, and uh, I think it's ridiculous. I think Boeing is doing a little bit of a number. We want Boeing to make a lot of money, but not that much money. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and then hits the elevators and he's gone. Now, the $4 billion numbers for research, development, and the plane, and that's an approximation because they don't, they don't know that all the equipment that goes into Air Force One, all the, the, they, they have to test this and research it and do all the things they do before they put the president in this plane to fly okay. around. And well, there's two planes. So this is right? going to take a couple of years so this, to finish. Yeah, this is a program. The, the current fleet, there's two planes that are 30 years old each. 
They're very expensive to maintain because the parts are old. They're sure. kind of out of date, so you have to keep building parts that the rest of the industry's moved away from. It's cheaper to update the fleet to more modern technology. Well, the but the paint to to paint uh, Trump Force One on the side is right. pretty expensive. The other side of it, he's talked about how he wants to use his own plane. He doesn't want to use Air Force One because he likes his plane. Problem is, his plane can't, you know. Security. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. it, it, you yeah. don't have like the mid-air refueling capabilities of Air Force One. You don't have the anti-missile technology that Air Force One has. You don't have all the rest of basically the flying Oval Office concept of you Air Force One. You don't have the open one. bar that Air Force One has. That too. Don't you just feel well, no, sorry they, for they, the they, guy? They a better one, yeah. I feel sorry for the guy. It's like, oh man, which plane am I going to take today? Yeah. You don't have room for the press on Trump's well, plane. That's Ooh. the other side too. But the the real thing that's interesting is the Washington Post reports that Trump his tweet came just minutes after the Chicago Tribune posted a story which the Boeing CEO strongly criticized anti-free trade rhetoric during the 2016 campaign. Campaign, and the timing suggests that he may have, quote, tanked Boeing's stock because he was mad about the news article. Hmm. Now, they, they pull that from the idea that when the week before, when he talked about burning the flag, came about 30 minutes after Fox News ran a report about people burning the flag. So he's responding to what he sees on TV or sees in the media and just sort of, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to shut this down. So in his cabinet, he needs to have a uh, Twitter handler, somebody that can regulate his usage. I've heard people speculate about that, okay. but I don't know if you can take that away. They've tried. I mean, we have, if you watch his account, if you have, there's certain uh, uh, apps you can use where it shows you what device was used when it was tweeted or what program was used. Right. You were talking about that. And you can see that when it's an Android phone, Mm -hmm. that's Trump. Okay. When it's an Apple phone, that's his staff. They Mm. both tweet on the same account. I was wondering if he actually tweeted on his own account. When They feel that if it's an Android device, that's Donald Trump tweeting. So never trust an Android user. Or wait. Maybe don't trust an iPhone user. I don't know. I mean, there's there's a parts of what he talked about. It's kind of like four billion dollars for an airplane. Is that the price? Does this need to be? But if you're talking about or? research yeah. and all the preliminaries up to the airplane as well, and there's two of them. Boeing says their contract at the moment is for uh, 170 million dollars. Hmm. To determine uh, the capabilities of these complex military aircraft that'll serve the unique requirements of the president. That's what they're in in for right now. Well, on the show yesterday, we we played a clip from his new – the head of the um, Department of the Interior Decorator. Yes. So maybe he's going to have the the head of the Department of the Twitter Decorator or Twitter Handler or – yeah. Also, yesterday, Joe Biden made comment about, I'm going to run in 2020. And then he said, I'm not. So is Kanye West. I am not. (laughs) And then he says he's not going to not deny – but but then he he it looks like he said something on on the late show with Stephen Colbert. He talked right? to Stephen Colbert and was able to uh, I guess clarify a little bit. Well, I'm a great respecter of fate. I don't plan on running again. But I, you know, to know to say you know what's going to happen in four years, I just think is uh, is, is not rational. I, I, I that I, is the I sound of a door creaking open. Is what well, that is. Well, 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 look. I mean, I I can't see the circumstance in which I'd run, but. What I've learned a long, long time ago, Stephen, is to uh, to never say never. You don't know what's going to happen. So mm. there you go, Joe Biden. 
Well, I think we are somewhat confident that maybe he could have won had mm. he run against Donald mm. Trump. Say it ain't so, Joe. <sighs> That's going to be the new slogan. It is. Yeah. Oh, At my goodness. At least from the Republicans. Anything else we want to get to before we uh, – nope, we're good? Okay. <laughs> Well, when we come back, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Stephen Shu, who is going to be talking to us about peak athletic performance. Have we plateaued when it comes to elite athletic performance or not? He will be answering that question and elaborating a little bit more on that topic when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're Dr. Mattless, but that's okay. This is Jeff Simpson covering his, uh, his plate today. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We are lucky enough to speak this morning with Dr. Stephen Shu. Now, uh, during the Rio Summer 2016 Olympics, athletes such as Michael Phelps, Usain Bolt, Simone Biles, and Katie Ledecky pushed the limits of athleticism in an amazing display of strength, power, and grace. As race times get faster and faster and routines get more complicated and stunning, we need to ask the question, are we near the limits of athletic performance? And here to help us answer that question is Dr. Stephen Shu, the vice president for research and a professor of theoretical physics at Michigan State University. Dr. Shu, thank you so much for being on the Matt Townsend Show with us this morning. My pleasure. Now, uh, do you want me to call you Dr. Shu or, or Steve? I think Steve is okay. fine. Well, Steve, uh, again, thank you for being on the program. So tell us a little bit about this, uh, a little more about this. Have, have we as humans touched the limits of athleticism yet? I don't think so. Um, actually, competitive sports are a relatively new activity insofar as large numbers of people, millions and millions of people, uh, have been training for them. Um, so we've only accessed a small fraction of the individual genotypes and phenotypes, I I can explain what that means in in a moment, um, that are possible within the human species. Now, is there one sport in particular that that you're fond of or that you follow in your research more than others? Well, you know, I was a competitive swimmer growing up. Really? I I still follow that. And uh, but, you know, the sometimes the easiest things to talk about are things, the simplest sports like um, running 100 meters. Um, You know, that's so simple and it's less technical, for example, than swimming. And so it really gets more toward your basic physical capabilities. Yeah. So, you know, and obviously there there seems to be a bit of corruption in each one of these sports. I I remember when I was a, a teenager following very closely the home run count of Sammy Sosa and Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and just just hoping and rooting that they would beat Roger Maris's record and then, you know, just disappointed later on to find out that uh, there were some illegal substances used and now you just don't see those types of numbers. You don't you don't see 70 home runs in a year. Well, I'll, you know, you raise an important point. So in 
studying human performance, um, you have to take into account that some athletes are using performance-enhancing drugs, and it's, it's actually a little bit hard to figure out uh, what the performance would have been had it not been for those drugs. Right. Yeah, which is why they, I don't know if they ever did it, but they wanted to put an asterisk on the ball that uh, Barry Bonds hit the home run with to get the, the, the record. But um, do you think that that uh, drugs and doping and steroids, do you think those are going to continue to be a part of, of athletics in the future? I think so, because typically the athletes themselves and the labs that they work with are a step ahead of regulators. And so typically what happens is somebody comes up with a particular variant uh, of a steroid or testosterone or HGH, which is not detectable and mm. that is in, in use for some years. Um, and then only later do the labs catch up, the, the, the regulators catch up. Now, one of the things that they've started doing is they now save the samples from the athlete, and they say they were going to save them for many, many years and then test them when the technology improves. So that could be a deterrent. You know, you have athletes who won their gold medals, you know, at the previous Olympics or maybe even two Olympics ago, and then later on, when the detection technology improves, uh, the samples are retested and these people get their metals stripped. So, But, you know, people being the way they are, they might be willing to risk uh, having their medals stripped and getting to enjoy eight years of being the world record holder or yeah. world medalist. So, so it's a very tricky situation. Um, you know, in a way, I think uh, I, I follow mixed martial arts or you know, like the ultimate fighting championship. And, and sometimes in these sports, you know, I just, think to myself, well, let's just let them fight. You know, I mean, these guys are professionals. They know what they're doing. Um, it's kind of interesting sometimes to see these guys who are, you know, have had the benefits of all this drug uh, uh, use, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I sort of have a mixed view of it. I mean, part of it, part of me says it would be great if we could get rid of all of that. But on the other hand, practically, it may be very hard. Yeah. And you know what? You, you mentioned how they're looking for more ways to make it less detectable. It kind of reminds me of, you know, crooks and finding new ways to to get away with the things that they do and, and also authorities upping their resources and, and their findings in order to stay ahead of the game and try to catch these these crooks. But you, it, you meant it, it is it is an arms race. I mean that's the correct yeah. way to describe it. Yeah. And you, you mentioned, you answered right off the bat that you don't feel like we have reached our full athletic potential yet. So what is, in your opinion, what is currently holding us back from doing that? Right. So this is, the, I think, the main point of, uh, there was an article that I wrote right around the time of the Summer Olympics that was published in a science magazine called Nautilus. And I think that's how your producer found me. Um, and the point I was making in that article is that if you think about, let's suppose you want to find the human who, you know, with a decent amount of training, um, can run the 100 meters the fastest, okay? And, you know, if you think about the number of humans that have actually lived, uh, estimates vary, but it could be something like 30 billion or even a hundred of order 100 billion humans have lived in the entire history of the Earth. Now, what fraction of those people had good nutrition, access to some training. 100 meters is not the most technical sport, but you do need some training right. and development. Um, and is Usain Bolt the best of those 100 billion, or is he the best of only the small fraction of those 30 or 100 billion who had the resources and the, the, the opportunity to compete? And 
obviously, um, we haven't got full penetration of you know the whole population of humans. So there, there are obviously some humans who might have been faster than Bolt that we just never saw compete. Um, mm, yeah, you know, there's this. There's every year there's some kid who's one of the top U.S. sprinters, but ends up going into football and dropping sprinting um, because there's just more money to be made in football. So there are a lot of people who played football who might have been. I'm not saying they would have beaten Usain Bolt or could be competitive with him, but there might have been uh, a lot of six four receivers and things like this who are super fast. Um, but even going beyond that, if you ask, well, we've had some number, tens of billions of humans that have existed in history, but aren't there many potential humans that were never born that will be born in the future, uh, some of whom could also be extreme outliers for, say, sprinting ability? And, of course, there must be. And so if you actually start analyzing it mathematically and you say, well, okay, so how many different types of humans could there be? Um, you know, imagine the human civilization continues on thousands of years in the future and our population keeps going up and up and we colonize other planets and other stars. Maybe eventually there'll be, you know, hundreds and thousands of billions of humans existing at any one moment in time. Um, is there enough variety or diversity in the genetic code that all of those people could be quite different from each other and continue to sample more and more types of uh, body shapes and capabilities, um, the mathematics suggests that that's true, that actually, you know, that we ain't, basically we ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> and, um, you know, that we'll, we'll see people who are qualitatively better than the people that we've seen so far. Yeah, and that's a really good point. You know, you, you think about all the people that have lived on the earth or who will ever live on the earth. And, you know, somebody might be could have the potential to be a really good musician or a really good athlete. But for some reason or another, they make a, a conscious decision that they're not going to do that. They're going to take another route or they, they pass away before they, they reach their full potential. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned genetics. Is this is this going into the, the type of technology that's going to help us break through this barrier? Yes, to some extent, because right now thanks to the rapidly decreasing cost of genotyping or reading out someone's DNA. So we, we're getting larger and larger data sets uh, which describe people's DNA uh, and increasing computer technology and better algorithms. We're basically at the point where we're starting to crack the genetic code that tells us what makes some people taller than others, stronger than others, smarter than others, more disease-resistant than others. And as we know more about this, and as we get the technology to manipulate genes, to edit genes, edit DNA, um, inevitably we'll be able to sample that space of possible people more efficiently. We'll be able to look specifically for certain types that we want or avoid certain types that we don't want. And inevitably, that's going to happen. And so, the exploration of this possible space of space of possible humans, it's going to proceed in a very different way than it has in the past. Hmm. So now, is this is this only limited to athleticism, or is it going to extend to to genes that affect IQ, addictions, things like that? I think all of these things, as they come online, so the the, the pipeline sort of looks like this. You know, scientists are studying this data as it accumulates. They publish their results in scientific journals. But once their results are published, then, you know, people who are, you know, for example, 
doing in vitro fertilization or having kids, you know, through a more scientific or technological manner, they typically have a choice of embryos that which embryo they want to use or in the future maybe they could even edit the embryos before they're implanted. And those people then can make decisions. So if they if they if they get a report from their geneticist that embryo number seven you know, has a elevated risk for diabetes, they may decide, well, all other things being equal, I don't want to implant number seven. Um, if they, the genetics report says, well, number three has a very in, uh, elevated probability of having a super above average IQ, the parents say, well, why don't we implant number three, all else being equal? And gradually, wow. I think these things are going to become normalized um, these things have been considered for a long time in both science fiction and also serious literature, for example, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. So the ideas are not new. Um, actually, if you're my age, you probably grew up watching Star Trek reruns, the old series, and you may remember this character, Khan, uh, the Wrath of Khan. Oh, yeah. And and there's a whole plot line in the Star Trek world where there was something called the eugenics wars in on Earth long before Kirk and Spock lived. And there were these sort of superhumans genetically produced who tried to take over the Earth, and Khan is one of them. And if you remember in the series, Khan is much stronger than Kirk. There's a fight they have at the end of the uh, episode where, you know, he, he, he takes Kirk's phaser and just crushes it with his hand. So this guy is probably stronger than any human that's ever lived. Um due to genetic engineering, and he's also super smart. He wakes up in the 23rd century and he starts reading through the, the library computers and the Enterprise and figures out how it works and things like this. So, you know, it, the ideas are not new. They've been around for a long time in science fiction and in, in, in the movies, in the movie Gattaca, for example. What's different and what's creeping up on people, I think, is the advance of the technology. So stuff that you might have thought was crazy, like hold the supercomputer in your hand, and it also makes phone calls. Um, that seemed like science fiction, like in when the Star Trek series was on television, but now I'm actually talking to you on what would have been considered a supercomputer right. in the yeah. 70s and 80s, uh, which also makes phone calls. So these technologies are creeping up on us, and I guess the thing I worry about is that the general population is really not ready. Even the government, I would say, or the, the leading, our leading leaders and officials not really prepared to deal with uh, these issues as they arise. Mm. You know, it's interesting you you bring up all those different examples of movies because as you were talking, I couldn't help but think of the movie Jurassic Park and sure. Jurassic World. Yep. And uh, that, that plays into that as well. Let's do this. Uh, let's take a break and let's continue this discussion when we come back. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Shu, who's been talking to us about gene editing. And uh, we're going to continue the conversation when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live happier, healthier, and hopefully more informed lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We have a very special guest here on, on this program this morning, and we're, we're grateful to continue the conversation with him. Dr. Stephen Shu is uh, the Vice President for Research and a Professor of Theoretical Physics at Michigan State University. 
He is also a scientific advisor to GBI, a nonprofit organization and world leader in genomics. He received his Ph.D. in physics from UC Berkeley, and his interests range from theoretical physics and cosmology to computer science and biology. Dr. Shu, thank you, and welcome back to the program. It's great to be here. So uh, before we went to the break, you you, know, you gave a few examples from movies of, of technologies that that we do have available now and that some that still may be ahead of us. Uh, this this technology of gene editing, how soon is this going to be ready and available? Well, it's interesting. So this is a, based on a breakthrough that happened in the last few years, which uh, increased substantially our ability to make uh, reliable edits to DNA. So to, to edit the DNA of an organism in exactly the place where we want to make the edit and without making... Uh, unanticipated edits in other regions, so very accurate and precise technology. On university campuses, for example, at Michigan State, uh, we just built a gene editing core facility to enable researchers on campus to make use of this technology. And in laboratory animals like mice, uh, for example, um, it is now quite routine to use this technology to make, for example, a single gene edit. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's very widespread. So it's every university, every major research university has researchers using this technology. So what, I mean, what are some of your other test subjects? You mentioned mice. Is that something that happens at, at Michigan state or do you have other test test subjects? Well, um, mice are a very common, uh, animal that are used in biomedical research. So every university has a secret population of, you know, potentially, you know, 100,000 mice uh, <laughs> in cages in laboratories around campus. So wow. it tends to be, it's a, it's a key model system that uh, biomedical researchers use, but mainly for convenience. It's not that it's actually the most similar to human in terms of medicine, but um, in terms of the functioning of the body, but it's just very convenient. And it is at least a mammal. Sure. Um, what, what I think people are most concerned about is whether this gene editing technology will be used on humans. Mm. And let me just say that the, the physics, the basic physics or biophysics of how DNA works and how the editing works is the same, whether you're editing a stalk of corn or a mouse or a human embryo or adult human. And so if it works well in these other models, it will for sure work well in humans in terms of actually just making a particular change in the DNA. Yeah. Um, and I believe there are actually clinical trials ongoing um, for applications of this in humans. So, for example, I believe there's a genetic condition which predisposes people to macular degeneration, so a problem with the functioning of their eye. And uh, there are actually trials where I believe they're injecting um, the, the actual the vector, the, the virus that causes this, uh, uh, that does the editing. They're injecting that into the eyes of patients who are having this problem with, with uh, genetically caused uh, macular degeneration, and they're editing the existing cells in their eye to fix that mutation and restore vision. So this is actually in an adult human. It's much simpler, obviously, obviously to edit an embryo, which only has a few cells. This is editing many, many existing adult cells uh, in a living person. So... 
that's just an example that I happen to be aware of uh, that uh, they're working on. But you can see that things are going to advance quite rapidly. And so society will, I think for sure, in 10 or 20 years, have to confront the question of, are you going to allow parents to make edits to something that may become their child? Um, What are the rules? The rules may not be uniform from country to country, so you may have rich parents going to countries where more procedures are allowed. Um, It's just going to open up a lot of predictable challenges to society. Sure. So, wow, 10, 10 to 20 years. You know, I, I couldn't help, again, once again, think of Jurassic Park and Jeff Goldblum, uh, the line that he has in the movie, you know, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. And, yeah, I think I think you, you brought up a good point that this this may bring up some big questions in a lot of people's minds of whether or not we should be doing this. So you've mentioned some of the benefits of this technology. What are some what are some more of those questions and concerns that you foresee people having with this technology? I think the biggest issues are going to be around inequality. So, you know, in this last election or worldwide, there are issues about uh, people are concerned about economic inequality. So why do the rich get to retain so much of the money they make, and why is there not, in, some people would say, not enough redistribution to really needy people. Um, now imagine a future where a, an affluent, wealthy parent, someone who's in the top 1%, can easily, through genetic means, ensure that their child is maybe healthier, maybe physically more gifted, maybe mentally more gifted than uh, a typical middle class or lower middle class child that's born. Wow. Think how upset the population is going to be that this is possible. Maybe you have to be fairly wealthy at first and you have to travel to Singapore or something to do it, but I'm pretty sure that wealthy people will do it. Um, but then eventually it'll be available maybe to the one percenters, et cetera, et cetera. And I think ultimately the question is going to be, our government's going to make this a part of the national health care system so that everybody can do it. Yeah. But, you know, you can imagine that there's going to be a rocky road from here to there. You know, it's it's interesting because we have talked movies so much during this interview, and I know that's not the main focus of your of your research. Um, I think Hollywood does a, a terrific job of playing into our fears of these types of, of deals because, you know, especially in terms of IQ, there's that movie Limitless where Bradley Cooper can take that pill and tap into a, a higher percentage of his brain. And even a movie like that, with, which has a really cool premise, is is turned more into this thriller, you know, and not all good things are going to happen because he can use more of his brain. Um, you know, another another thing that could be brought up is is a racial bias. You know, will people are people going to have the ability to determine the race of their children? Well, uh on on the limitless topic for those of your viewers that have uh, seen the movie which i thought was really good actually oh yeah yeah it's, a, it's about a drug that allows someone to really um their brain to function much better uh, than a normal person and and the main character is able to do just incredible things um in a way i think it's not science fiction so in the same way that i said to you maybe there are 
I'm pretty sure there are possible humans that can run faster than Usain Bolt. I'm also certain that there are possible humans, or maybe even a few that are, we know that actually lived, who have brains that are more like the character uh, in Limitless, the, the protagonist in Limitless, more like his brain on the drug than like a normal person's brain. And if you actually look carefully at the people who have pushed forward our knowledge of physics or um, mathematics, computer science, you see that it's, it's primarily fairly exceptional people. It's Usain Bolt-like people in terms of their brain um, who push society ahead. And so a future where there are more people like that is actually better for us. We, we will, you know, the, the pace of invention, the pace of innovation, uh, all those things will be enhanced. And that's harder to dramatize because you're talking about some scientists working in a lab. Or right. Technologists mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley. It's not as exciting as somebody, <laughs> you know, dealing with the mob or Russian gangsters. Right, or right. For exactly what happened in the movie. But, but it's not as easy to dramatize, but those are the real benefits to society. Uh, from this kind of thing is having a healthier, smarter population over time. And that, that in a way can only be good. I think that the path to get there is quite challenging, but I think it's definitely a better place to be ultimately uh, than where we are now. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Now, and getting back to that question about race, is that something that, that they will be able to determine the race of their children? Well, I'll tell you something very funny because uh, so I occasionally lecture on this topic. And when I lecture to geeky scientists, uh, they always come up after the lecture and they say to me in a very concerned way, they say, this is really terrible. Parents are going to be pushing all their kids toward being super smart. Um, Everybody will be trying to get the gene variants that make their kids smarter. Okay. And my response is, often something like, well, are you sure? Because maybe some of the parents are going to want their kid to be more like the quarterback. And you know, some, mm. some are going to, you know, maybe we don't have uh, completely uniform desires sure. uh, for what our kids should be like. And I, I, I actually gave a talk to uh, a, a group of uh, sort of very wealthy investor types. And uh, interestingly, some of the, I don't want to call them trophy wives, but some of the very beautiful younger wives of these really rich People came up to me after the talk, and they were very concerned. And they said, uh, well, isn't this terrible? Because it, once this technology exists, everyone's going to want their daughter to be tall and blonde. And, and, <laughs> and so you see, everybody sees the world through their lens. And I think generally people like children that kind of look like them, but maybe just a little bit better. And yeah. So, I, you know, um, who knows what preferences parents are going to have, um, to what extent should government regulate what parents are allowed to do uh, in selecting or modifying their kids. Uh, these are all really tough ethical and philosophical questions, and it's hard to predict. Now, I do want to say that one of the most vexing questions that we have in modern society is relations between different ethnic groups that look a little bit different. So I, I'm, I'm you know, Chinese-American, so I look a certain way. And people have these stereotypes about, okay, this is what Chinese-Americans are like, or this is what African-Americans like, or this is what Polynesian-Americans are like. But once you have this gene editing going on, you could, all those stereotypes, whether they're true or not, 
they can be made to go away because yeah. you know if people say hey these Chinese people they're they're pretty short they don't there's only one NBA uh, only a handful of NBA players ever who you know are Asian American yeah well maybe you're going to end up with a lot of seven foot five Asian Americans to play <laughs> in the NBA because of gene editing it just depends on what you know what what parents do or what the technology does that's what so, an interesting um, way to look at that too just getting rid of some of these stereotypes that that are kind of detrimental. Wow. Yeah, I think I think in a future where these technologies are available to everyone, um, people will think, "Wow, that was crazy." You know, we we used to associate people's skin color with you know their athletic ability or how smart they were. But um, in the and and it may be totally untrue those stereotypes. But in any case, they'll certainly be made untrue uh, if everybody has access to gene editing, right? So yeah. you know, maybe all the sprinters will be uh, look like Japanese people in the Olympics instead of. Uh, Americans, you know, if you, yeah. who knows, right? So, um, yeah, so I, I actually view that as a very positive thing. It, it will allow us to move beyond whatever superficial correlations we have between what someone, you know, this color of someone's skin and their, their deeper uh, capabilities. Yeah. Okay, now beyond uh, just embryos, is this, is this a technology that, uh, that could also work on adults? That's a difficult question. So the, the the clinical trial that I mentioned to you actually is being done on adults. Um, the difficulty with gene editing in adults is that you have many, many cells in your body, and each cell has the DNA information, and it would be quite a challenge for me to go in and edit every one of your existing cells. So the place where you have the most leverage is when the embryo is small and only has a small number of cells, and then you have a better chance of editing all the all the DNA um, in each cell um, and creating an organism which is uniformly uh, edited. So uh, it's definitely a challenge, but you never know. I mean, um, it's, it's tough to predict how technology is going to evolve. Well, Dr. Shu, we've really enjoyed having you on the program, and it's it's so refreshing to get an optimistic view on this subject. You know, not everybody who who is involved in this sort of technology is going to eat each other or, you know, get mixed up with, with Russian mobsters. So it's great to, to have an optimistic view about this, and uh, we really appreciate you being on the program this morning. Dr. Shu is a, a scientific advisor to GBI, a nonprofit organization and world leader in genomics. He's also the vice president for researcher uh, for research and a professor of theoretical physics at Michigan State University. And he's been talking to us this morning about gene editing and uh, just a fascinating topic. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we're going to have some more fun, cover some more news stories, and uh, this is the Matt Townsend Show helping you lead healthier, happier, and hopefully more informed lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We just wrapped up a very, very interesting interview with Dr. Stephen Shu, who was talking about gene editing. And uh, he raised some very important questions, I thought, you know, because my mind gravitates more toward you know, movies like Jurassic Park and Limitless, where when we're given this type of technology or or we have the resources to produce this type of technology, we are going to use it for 
evil intent or things do not go according to plan or they go awry like they do in the movies. But he brought up a good point, too. If uh, if you showed a bunch of scientists working in a lab in real life, it probably wouldn't be all that exciting. And so they, Hollywood likes to dramatize these depictions of, of this sort of technology. But uh, he also raised some important questions about stereotypes and what we would do with this technology as parents. You know, who among us as a parent wouldn't want our children to be smarter or more physically healthy and capable? Uh, very important questions. You know, there we need to be sensitive, too, to, to people who uh, who want to make sure that that we are living the lives that we are supposed to be living and without altering our bodies in any way. Um, but just an interesting way to look at it and and a more optim a more optimistic way of looking at it as well and not looking at it through the lens of Hollywood. Anyway, that is the first hour of the Matt Townsend show. We've wrapped it up. It's in the can. And when we come back, we've got some more fun, some more news to help keep you more informed and to help you live healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is still away sick or who is still pulling a Ferris Bueller on us. And uh, who knows? We'll see when he gets back. But no, he's he's sick. I have just one word. Yes. Aruba. Aruba. <laughs> For some reason, that makes me think of arugula. Mm. I'm always hungry on the show. It's early. We're up here early. Anyway, today is December 7th, 2016. And December 7th sounds familiar because hopefully it is to you. It is Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. It is a day that President Franklin D. Roosevelt said that would live in infamy, and uh, it truly has. Wow. Um, It's also, uh, we've been getting news about a Pakistan flight that crashed, and we know now that there have at least been 21 bodies found of... I believe it's uh, 44, 45 passengers and five crew members. So our thoughts and prayers go out to them. And uh, we would encourage you to uh, to send your thoughts and prayers to, for their family and loved ones as well. Also, on a lighter note, it is Cotton Candy Day. And nobody in here is excited about it. Nobody wants to have cotton candy. Nobody even wants to pour water or any kind of a liquid on cotton candy which is one of the simple joys in life. Anyway, go celebrate Cotton Candy Day by uh, going to a fair or just going to your store and getting cotton candy in one of the buckets or just don't celebrate it. It's You have that freedom of choice. Anyway, we've got a lot of fun stories coming up on the show this morning, uh, including an important story which isn't, it's a little more serious, but it's its about uh, distracted driving and how we can fix it. We'll be speaking with David Boyle, or no, I'm sorry, we'll be speaking with Vijay Dixit, who will be uh, shedding some more light on that topic. 
Plus, we'll be telling a story, another, yet another story about Nutella. We have a never-ending supply of Nutella stories. I personally don't see all the, the, uh, I don't see why people love Nutella so much. Oh, you are just breathing blasphemy right now. (laughs) Wow. By the way, it's Nutella. What happened to the old Tella? It's new now. Oh. Well, I've clearly offended Sean O'Neill. I apologize. I, I meant no harm. And uh, we'll also be giving you some more burrito news because, you know, you can never have too much burrito news unless it's vegetarian burrito news. We don't need any of that in here. Anyway, all that fun coming up. And uh, we're going to head over now to Sadie Nielsen, who's going to give us the latest on what's going on around the country. Sadie, what's going on? Retired football star Rashawn Salam was found dead in a Boulder, Colorado park Monday at the age of 42. Salam, a running back, won the Heisman Trophy in 1994 for the University of Colorado. He was a first-round draft pick for the Chicago Bears, where he became the youngest player to rush 1,000 yards. His cause of death is unknown, and authorities say there were no signs of foul play. However, it is suggested that reported um, that police are investigating the death as a possible suicide. President-elect Donald Trump has been named Time Magazine's Person of the Year for 2016. The cover reads, Donald Trump, President of the Divided States of America. And Trump marked the announcement with an appearance on the NBC's Today Show. To be on the cover of Time as Person of the Year is a tremendous honor, Trump told Matt Lauer on Wednesday morning, complaining, however, in typical Trump fashion, that he found the word divided to be a snarky choice for the magazine's headline. The Supreme Court on Tuesday handed Samsung a victory in its legal battle against Apple, which accused its rival phone manufacturer of copying the design of the iPhone. A jury had previously awarded Apple $399 million after it ruled that Samsung had copied some of the iPhone's shapes and appearances. But in a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court ruled that Samsung did not owe Apple losses for the full cost of the phone, rather just the elements that had been ruled to infringe copyright. And finally... Yes. In your Christmas news, um, a Minnesota family is paying tribute to the late superstar Prince with a Christmas light show featuring 10,000 purple bulbs <gasps> and the song Purple Rain. Oh. So Mike Staunton and his family said they decided to create a tribute to the purple one. for did the. They, in- did they pay for the rights? Probably not. <laughs> Prince's people are really big on rights. Yes. But are they, are they is it a revenue stream for them? think so he just hmm. said um that prince's passing meant so much to our community that we decided to do a short dedication during the intermission of our christmas light show to honor him hmm. and we've received compliments on the show and a few people even mentioned it made them teary-eyed oh that's fun yeah you know it, i'm i don't know that i've listened to a lot of his music but one song of his that i've always loved is that song kiss kiss you don't know it mm-hmm. you don't have to Beautiful. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. And then he just <laughs> goes <dancing>. crazy <laughs> by the end of the song. That's my favorite one of his. I'd go see a Christmas light show if it had that song. Yeah. I love these Christmas light shows. In fact, in my husband's family's neighborhood, they've created this thing where it says, you know, tune your radio to 88.5 right. or something yeah. like that, and then you can watch all the lights. I think it's a great way to be festive, and I love driving around, and I know Terry's shaking his head right now. <laughs> <laughs> Just listen, Terry. You yeah. don't. You don't have to be a Grinch. It's okay. It's not a Grinch. It's just uh, 
Christmas lights. Just, just wait till your kids are old enough to drive and they can take themselves, Terry. Ooh. Well, that's the other thing. I have to go drive around. Exactly. Look at this See, stuff, there is so. a silver lining in this, Terry. <sighs> There's two or three places around my house. They want like 30 bucks to sit in your car and drive around. You're just like, seriously. They charge you? Oh, yeah. You should come to, you should come yeah. to our yes. neighborhood. And of course, they, my, wife, my wife's like, yeah, let's Well, they're not neighborhoods. These are. Oh, the yeah, like, these are businesses. businesses. Yes. But yes. isn't that isn't that part of the appeal that you just pay somebody and you can sit in your car, sip hot chocolate, and not have your kids complain how cold I, it is? I got a cheaper one for you. So oh, do you? Yeah, I'll tell you later. Yeah, not for thirty bucks. No, it's not <laughs> thirty. <laughs> but like, there's there's two of them I know of that, you, you, and it's fine. Yeah, great lights, but and then my brother goes through with his phone, recorded the whole thing, and then I watched it, and I go, great, now I don't have to pay. But there's Prince. I just throw it up on my TV, and and again, they may shut that down because, again, do they have the rights just to play the music? Yeah. They'll find a way. <sighs> yeah. Thanks, Sadie. That's some of the hardest music to find. I believe in the magic of Christmas and Christmas light shows, even if they play Purple Rain. Right. Anyway, uh, we we teased a story about Nutella. I've, I've pronounced you've it correctly been, you've now. Been, you've been corrected. Yes. Police have uncovered $30,000 worth of stolen Nutella as part of a major investigation into a crime syndicate linked to drug trafficking, Mm. car theft, and a kidnapping plot in Canada. Man, it it seems like you can't can't hear about Nutella without also hearing about trafficking and kidnapping. You know, it's pretty simple. You just go to the store and buy it. Not I if think you it's want like five, five bucks. Yeah, where are you going to get thirty thousand dollars worth though? They don't have that much on stock. I'm sorry, but where are you going to store thirty thousand dollars worth of Nutella? There's Costco. a guy. There's a guy made a YouTube video. <laughs> he's swimming in a bathtub full of Nutella. Oh, that's like swimming in Jello. I know. He's like just it's drenched all over him. He's just swimming around. You're like, wow, that's a waste of all that. Oh, you know, you can imagine, you can imagine all the the Nutella fans out there just furious at this guy for well, wasting especially all if that you get thirty thousand dollars worth of Nutella. You got to buy fifty thousand dollars worth of bread to spread it on. Come right. on, yeah, he's going to have thirty thousand dollars worth of uh, chemicals to clean that bathtub and himself. Anyway, investigators in York, Toronto, came across the truckload of the popular hazelnut hazelnut spread in a warehouse along with about $5 million of stolen goods, including luxury cars, car parts, e-cigarettes, and alcohol, Hmm. as well as drugs and weapons. Following an extensive wiretapping investigation, police swooped on 23 people accused of being part of the crime group, including ringleader and alleged criminal mastermind known as the King of Car Thieves. Police originally began investigating the group over a single car theft and eventually uncovered a tangled web of criminal activity. It's alleged the group stole expensive cars, including Lamborghinis, Maseratis, Mm. Porsches, BMWs, and Lexuses. Lexuses? I I would love to have some money. Isn't that Lexi? Oh, Lexi. Excuse me. Sean O'Neill, the master of pronunciation. Is is that that for their more economically minded... You know, fences, I don't know, wherever you're moving this product, the Lexus. Yes. You like Thank Ferrari, you, yeah, Ferraris and Lamborghinis, and then you toss in a Lexus. It's like, eh. What I love is I want is you that... to go get me some Nutella. <laughs> yeah, what I love I need about... something for my toast. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'd like uh, a couple of M16s, give me some of the explosives. The Lamborghini's good, and do you have any Nutella on hand? It'd be great. There, just, that's going to be the next Grey Poupon commercial. They're going to roll down the window. Pardon me, do you have any Nutella? 
Yeah, that's what they focus on is the Nutella. Forget all that. Yeah, we, we don't care about the Lamborghinis and the, the Maseratis <laughs> and the Lexi. The Lexi. We want that Nutella back. Someone is going to pay wow. dearly. That's interesting. And apparently 23 people have so You're far. sure this isn't a Smokey and the Bandit episode? <laughs> it sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, they have people um, – what is it? It's maple syrup. There's a huge black market in Canada for mm. maple syrup. And so they smuggle it in and out of – I mean, the mobs involved and they, the cops are trying to get on top of it in the Canadian provinces. But, yeah, it's, it's weird what, what gets trafficked. But I mean, this is obviously a bigger story that they're. But then they just focus on the the odd the odd thing that was in the collection of stolen goods. Canada is cracking down on Nutella theft. Huh? Do not mess with Canada and their Nutella. Anyway, one more story uh, about uh, a burrito. A robber attempted to take money from a Iowa City Chipotle Mexican grill, but fled with only a burrito. A police report says a man entered the restaurant about six thirty p.m. He got in line and ordered a burrito, a female cashier told police. When the man got to the cash register, he said he had a gun in his sweatshirt, opened a bag, and demanded the cashier put money in it, according to the report. The cashier told police she got scared and ran into the back room without giving the suspect any money. The man then grabbed the bagged burrito and ran out of the front door, police say. Hmm. He got away with a $7 burrito, Des Moines uh, Police Sergeant Raymond Carrington said on the scene. Police are reviewing video of the incident and no word on whether the burrito was chicken or steak. That's important to know. Yeah. If it's steak, I think you press charges. If it's chicken, you probably let it go. You know, I think I don't even think he was interested in the money. I think he just wanted a free burrito. Don't want to wait in line. Yeah. Lines can be crazy this time of year. Well, maybe Amazon will offer um, Chipotle burritos at their Amazon stores. They, they, they won't they have were, to stand in line. They were testing at a college some uh, drones, drone delivery with Chipotle burritos. So really? That could be coming nationwide oh. whenever they allow drones to actually do something. So if it's chicken, he's looking at at least a year. But if it's steak, he's going away for a long could be. time. I think steak is more of a, a serious offense. Than and yes. if you throw $30,000 worth of Nutella in there, too, forget it. Oh. Lock them up. Speaking of food, um, one of my favorite members of Congress, a guy from Texas named uh, Louis Gohmert. Yes. Just because of the name. Louis <laughs> Gohmert. Yes. He, uh, he has this love of uh, cooking or smoked ribs on the uh, balcony outside of his U.S. Capitol office. He wants to, as he says, many people find it the, 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 the best ribs they've ever tasted, and he wants to share it with his fellow members of Congress, and he feels like he's doing a service. And the Capitol architect who kind of runs the, the Capitol building in D.C. told him to knock it off because it's a fire hazard. And then he starts going off about regulations, and we have to live under this uh, – you know, all these these different rules that they put down, they're really arbitrary and don't really – I mean, it is a fire hazard. You're, you're, sure. You're barbecuing at the state capitol building. And uh, so he, he went to the, the uh, Speaker of the House and some other members of Congress. They talked to the capitol architect, and apparently this problem has been fixed. So Louis Gohmert can now smoke his ribs, and he talked oh, about – Oh, hallelujah. Well, the thing that's odd is he went to the House floor and took time to talk about this. <laughs> Clip two, if you play that. About seven years ago, the architect of the Capitol, who works for the House and Senate, had decided that we all work for him and uh, started making 
demands, uh, one of which was I could not cook ribs and share them with other members of Congress. Well, I am grateful that Speaker was able to persuade the bureaucracies here on Capitol Hill You're like, what? that we can make this work and have it safe. Uh, what I cook, it, it's probably the only time here on Capitol Hill when I actually leave a good taste in people's mouths instead of a bitter taste. Now, this is, it is true. It's probably the, the one time everyone's like, yeah, I like Louis Gohmert. I like that guy. Nothing is going to unify people in Congress more than barbecue. Anywhere, really. Right. Who's going to argue over a plate of ribs? Now, he, Nobody. He used this issue on the floor of the House Friday, this one he did last week, when he slammed federal agencies over their priorities. All right, he's trying to use this to illustrate that there's other agencies up. doing things that don't make sense. Like he was trying to say this doesn't make sense, him barbecuing in his office. What we have here is a failure to communicate. Yes, <laughs> there's that. Cool hand, Luke. Willie Gomert is the guy. Remember there was the uh, the sit-in by House Democrats? Yeah. And they, they filmed it on they, – they ran it on uh, Periscope and on Facebook Live. and That's why he was cooking ribs because they were all sitting in well, and needed, needed some sustenance, <laughs> at, at right? That time, at that time, it was still banned. Well, as they were sitting there, there was a member of the House that came in and screamed hysterically at them to go away, and it was Willie Gomert, right? So his, <sighs> his answer to this sit-in was to go in and scream hysterically at people. You know so. what, though? I, I, I said it just a couple seconds ago, and I'll say it again. Nobody is going to argue over a plate of ribs. No. Vegetarians are not going to argue over uh, – even vegetarians want ribs. And they if do. The, if there's anyone that doesn't like the ribs, they haven't had these ribs apparently. Oh. Apparently they're, they're just the greatest ribs. And he shares his mom's – he said he shares his mom's knack for just wanting to share his food with people. That's what this is about, hospitality. See, so many problems in this country could be solved with food. There you go. Oh, ribs. Willie Gomert, representative, Texas. Any good ribs around here that I can go get at lunch? I don't know, maybe. Bam Bams. Oh, that's right. They do have good ribs. Actually, I don't think I've had their ribs, but they do have good barbecue. Anyway, sorry, that was a little plug for a local establishment that we have here in Utah County. And uh, we're going to take a break, and I don't think a minute and a half will be enough for me to go out and get some ribs, but maybe for lunch. When we do come back, we will actually be speaking about a very serious topic, which is distracted driving. And our guest, Vijay Dixit, is uh, going to tell us how it kills and how we can fix it when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away sick today once again. But uh, we will soldier on and and cover the important topics and stories. And and our next guest is is going to cover one of those important stories for us. On your drive to work today, did you apply makeup or check an email or eat breakfast? Hopefully you were responsible enough not to. But what about all the other drivers on the road? State patrol officers who deal with crashes every day see smartphones as the new open bottle in the car that makes drivers impaired and dangerous. 
So how do we prevent the tragedies that come from distracted driving? Here to tell us his story is Vijay Dixit. Vijay is the author of One Split Second, The Distracted Driving Epidemic, How It Kills and How We Can Fix It. And uh, Vijay Dixit is also a management and business process design consultant who has worked in the IT, health insurance, and energy industries. And he's a graduate of the Indian Institute of Technology. And he moved to the U.S. in 1974 to do graduate work in clean technologies and business management. And he's here with us now on the program. Vijay, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much, Jeff, for inviting me. So, Vijay, obviously this is a very sensitive topic to you uh, since your, your daughter, Shirei, passed away uh, due to distracted driving. What, what more can you tell us about the circumstances of that? Well, it, the circumstances were very kind of simple. Shreya, a 19-year-old daughter, on 1st of November 2007, and that's almost nine years, a little over nine years ago, was coming home. She was a sophomore at uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison, going for international business, and was a dean's scholar, pretty good student and got a ride that morning to come home for the weekend. And she called us at around maybe quarter to seven or so that they are leaving now. And there were four kids in the car. She was a front passenger. The girl who was driving about 45 minutes or so outside the city on an interstate reached out for something. And we do not know really what happened, but that is what the girl told us. She reached out for a napkin or something at the back, and in that process, oversteered, tried to correct it, understeered, and hit a pylon. Big cement cement blocks that you have under the bridge. And we lost her in a moment of distraction, and that's why in a split second we lost her. And that's the name of your book, too, One Split Second. And I'm, I apologize, you, uh, you said the, the way that you say your daughter's name is Sheree? Shreya. Oh, we Shreya, Shreya, excuse me. Shreya, yes, Shreya. Okay. Shreya means grace. It's a Sanskrit word for grace. Mm. And, you know, your daughter sounds like such an amazing person, too. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you and your wife have started the Shreya Dixit Memorial Foundation. What would you say is, is the, the mission of that foundation? Well, that foundation, uh, Jeff, was started uh, within a few months after losing Shreya. And we felt that because she was a teenager, she was 19, and then we had been seeing a lot of these distractions occurring on the roads and highways and sideways, and we thought that we must do something about it. And we were going through a lot of therapy and a lot of grief. And our therapist, and I thank her very much, Susan Reynolds, who said that, Vijay, if you do not do something positive for this, you will go into an asylum. And that was true for my wife, Reka. And so we said that, all right, Susan, help us. So she connected with us, individuals who had worked on setting up nonprofits. And within a few months, we applied for the nonprofit uh, uh, for the 
foundation, non-profit stat, status for the foundation, and uh, got it there. And the mission is just one, save lives by educating, educating as well as raising awareness about distraction and distracted driving, how it kills and what we can do about it. And uh, education is the primary foundation of our foundation. Mm, thank you so much for, for sharing that. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a good example, too, your, of your counselor helping you to turn such a, a terrible tragedy in your life into something that is positive and that can have an impact on so many other people. Um, so we talked a little bit about your book, One Split Second, The Distracted Driving Epidemic and How It Kills and How We Can Fix It. So clearly this has this tragedy in your life had an impact or influenced you to to write this book. Is there anything else that that uh, contributed to the exodus of, of this book that you wrote? Yes, actually, very much so. See, Jeff, you will realize that, yes, I'm one of those probably very few individuals, and we have a few hundred in the country, who have lost their children or dear ones to distracted driving or distracted drivers, per se, Majority of them, believe me, cannot even get out of their beds in the morning. I was able to do that with the help of therapy, very good therapy, grief therapy. And so we thought that not only for our own health, own sanity, but more for those individuals who are unable to do anything about it, and they will continue to suffer. But if I can do something so that in the future, no other parent like me has to go through that, and no parent like those individuals who are in their bedrooms all the time and getting into all sorts of psychological issues, I'm doing it for them. And then to see where the future is. So unless we do something about a problem, problem just does not go away. You have to act on it. And we, fall, we, we strongly felt that we were capable, knowledgeable, and also had the motivation and the urge and hopefully the energy to do this. Mm. And it was more like a challenge. It's more like a challenge that you face, you do not know whether you'll succeed or you'll fail. Right. Wow. Um, so when you, were, when you were doing the research for this book, what was something that you came across that, that surprised you? What was something that was unexpected in your research? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, you mentioned something. I would say couple of things surprised me quite a lot. And they are on both sides of the spectrum. One is encouraging, one is somewhat discouraging, rather quite discouraging. The encouraging part, let me tell you that, that when I saw 
people around me. When I started to talk individuals who were helping me with writing the book, because, see, I am an expert in grief. I write and read reasonably good English. I can speak good English, but I would not uh, claim to be an author. So I am not an author. That's why I, I had to help get some help. So I, I was very lucky to have gotten the help of a New York Times bestselling author. That was the very first surprise on the encouraging part that I got. And she helped me a lot through the editing and interviewing. And we interviewed close to three dozen individuals, experts in the field of education, advocacy, law enforcement, driver education, and uh, even even those people who are offended, uh, offenders, as well as victims mm. and doctors, therapists. So I I developed a fairly large network of individuals who would provide me information and the amount of knowledge that I got from them and including one from your own neighborhood, Dr. David Strayer, who is a world authority on distracted driving now. And uh, he's from University of Utah. Mm. And he he was so good and he provides me a lot of internet, uh, not only international knowledge, knowledge about the industry, knowledge about the issues. And also I went to University of Minnesota, and they provided me a lot of data, as you see in one of my chapters, is filled with data. And those were very encouraging that there are people from different walks of life who are helping in their own way with their knowledge, with their encouragement, and all sorts of things that I received as a positive message for these individuals. Hey, Vijay, do it. I'll help you. They'll make extra effort to meet with me. Long distance calling and even drive from long distance to meet with me. So those were the very encouraging part, and that's what I feel very proud and very honored to have the opportunity to talk to a number of uh, real prominent individuals in the country, uh, top among them the former Secretary of Transportation, Rayla Hood, who is actually coined the word for distracted driving. Mm. He it, it's an epidemic. He's the one who started to talk about distracted driving as an epidemic in 2009, and he went to uh, first distraction free driving summit in Washington, D.C. in 2009. But that was on the national scale. But then one of our senior senators in Minnesota, Senator Amy Klobuchar, was another person who really, really held us in her arms. And she had been supporting us for the last nine years. And so those were the very positive aspects of writing this book. Now, I'm spending a little bit more time on the positive because that is what I believe in. Yeah. If I did not believe in positive, Jeff, I would not be able to withstand this. Absolutely. Yeah. That loss that we have done, we have suffered. But the sad part or the 
discouraging part or the challenging part is this, that the industry, the technology industry, the wireless companies, the cell phone manufacturers, and even many of the auto companies, they are installing all these very high-tech communication devices and are not willing, I'll use the word willing, to discuss in detail what are the risks associated with it. Of course, you know, I try to contact many of them to become part of my team of interviewees that I would get, but I did not get any success in talking to any of these technology companies. Reason being, I felt that the questions that I was asking them were more like might even open up some very contentious discussions of conflict of interest. Hmm. They are, and we do not want them to lose money, but at the same time, Jeff, you will agree, there is a social responsibility. Oh, absolutely. There is a responsibility that must accompany every product, every service that you offer. Now, and when you tried to reach out to them, did they... Did you ask them anything about what sort of tests they're running to see if these cool gadgets and features on the on their smart devices are are safe while driving? <laughs> Interesting, because all these individuals, because they are executives and very very uh, busy people, so I made sure that before I even talk to them, I send them a list of some talking points, some questions, some some items that I want to discuss. And after reading my requests, they would very respectfully decline. They said, well, you know, majority of the things that you're asking are on our website. Hmm. Two of the companies that they said exactly this. I said, well, website just tells you something in text, which was probably written a few months ago. I want everything that is current in the company. So I tried to engage them, Jeff, but that was the challenging and discouraging part of the book. And that's why I do write some commentary, but that is my opinions in this rather than presenting someone else's or executive, uh, you know, comments on this issue. Yeah. And this is what I feel sad, that why, why, as the most advanced country in the world, we are behaving in such an irresponsible manner. Ooh, that is a good that is a good question. And Vijay, let's let's get back to that when we take a after we get back from a quick break here. We're speaking with Vijay Dixit, who is the author of the book One Split Second, The Distracted Driving Epidemic, How It Kills and How We Can Fix It. We'll continue this important topic when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live healthier, happier, more informed, and hopefully safer lives. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. We've been speaking with uh, with uh, Vijay Dixit, who is the author of the book One Split Second. After losing their daughter Shreya to a distracted driver in 2007, Vijay and his wife established the Shreya R. Dixit Memorial Foundation to conduct awareness and education campaigns in the states of Minnesota and Connecticut. In addition to his advocacy work with the foundation, Vijay drew on his, his engineering background to pioneer the development of the world's first adaptive, massive, open online course for combating distracted driving. Vijay lives in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Vijay, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Jeff. And thank you for, for joining us. So you, you posed an important question uh, before we went to break, and obviously we want to know what it's going to take to get people to take this seriously and to change their behavior behind the wheel. Would things like increasing tickets and fines, would, would, are those the, the solutions that are going to discourage uh, distracted driving? Well, in a way, yes. But I would say it's more like a, you know, rather than going a singular solution, I call it a, more like a triangle. There are three sides of the triangle. One is legislation and law enforcement. Second is technology and information. And the third is which I call the base of that triangle, is the foundation called education and awareness. And the reason being that education is the least expensive part. It is more permanent. It has permanence in it. Once you learn how to swim, you never, you never fail to swim. Once you know how to bike, you always will bike. Whereas, as far as the legislations and the fines and the technologies, they keep changing on a daily basis. They change with the, with the car design. They change with the politics in the country. They change with the economy. So those things are important, and they definitely help you reach a goal of you know, controlling some bad behavior, just like, uh, just like uh, drinking, just like smoking. Now, yes, smoking doesn't cost us any fines, but those fines come in the form of cancer, in the form of bad health. Right. Drinking, yes, it costs us a, it costs us a penalty if you get caught while driving, so those are things they they just impede, but they cannot eliminate a situation or a problem. Right. So education is going to play a big part in that. Uh, we yes, we, we talked in the in the first segment about um, you know smartphones being being a big culprit of that. Are there are there any type of technological solutions that that can maybe limit their use while people are driving? Yes, there are actually large number of them are available right now. Some of them are actually, I'll give credit to the wireless companies, they are wireless and some of the insurance companies, and they are actually produced by these, you know, like it when it can wait and even progressive insurance and AT&T. Uh, they are all doing things to uh, 
take the phone, you know, offline. When it rings, you cannot text. But it is just the just the availability of that piece of electronics sitting next to you, which actually is the problem. And so we have to keep manipulating those technologies to discourage people from doing it, either through penalties or through some technologies. Just don't let them even able to use it. But at the same time, I personally feel those technologies are there for the user to either abuse or use. We have bright individuals, so technologies do help. And there are a lot of technologies. There is a, there is a bill, and, and there is a technology called textilizer, similar to a breathalyzer thing, which is being hmm. tried out in New York State. And I know the person who is doing it, which is fine. But at the same time, the issue that we face, how technology could help, I will tie that with law enforcement. Law enforcement is totally challenged because in my book I have talked to a lot of, a lot of law enforcement people. And Matt Langer, Colonel Matt Langer, who's the chief of state patrol in Minnesota, he said, Vijay, we have difficulty catching these people texting. It's impossible to see them text in action unless we are, we are just standing there and looking through the windows. And you can, you know, if you stand still on the, on the shoulder, these cars go so fast, it's impossible to track them. So there are technologies, and in fact, our foundation also is in the process of developing a technology so that that law enforcement can document a running vehicle while they are distracted. And I use the word distracted, Jeff, it is not just texting. And you mentioned right in the beginning of your, uh, of your uh, program that it is, just not, it is just not distraction from cell phones. It's everything. Right, it's eating, applying your makeup. Yeah, uh, applying the make- makeup and doing real weird things in the car. I've seen people reading books on the steering yes. wheel. Yes, and you will see that one of the one of the persons, Chris Weber, who I interview, he's an offender, who I interviewed in the book. He was he was filling up an application on his cell phone while driving. Wow. You know, and one of the one of the really frustrating truths about especially in terms of cell phones is there was a day and a time when we got to our destination and didn't have a phone. We could make it through a trip without having to look at our phone because we didn't have it. It wasn't an option. That is right. <laughs> so so true and we used to have uh, what uh cassette recorders and mm-hmm. CDs, and now we have iPhones. But see, I, I'm a technology person, too, so I leverage technology to my best. So I'm not against technology. So the problem is our behaviors, Jeff. The yes. driving behaviors are still in the 50s and 60s, whereas the automobile communication technologies installed in the cars is in the 23rd century now uh, because we are looking at 
self self-driving car. I use the word uh, jocularly that we are in the 23rd century because the future is unlimited. We are a very we are the most intelligent uh, intelligent community living on this earth. So we cannot we cannot discourage uh, innovation, motivation, thinking. So I think the behaviors that gap that exists between the behavior of a driver of the 50s and a car of the 2016 and 2017 is the gap. Unless that shortens or that is eliminated, we will still continue to have problems. We have not advanced our driving behaviors. They have not moved up moved along with the advances in technology. So it's changing behavior, changing mentality. Vijay, we've, we've got about a minute left before, uh, before we need to wrap this up, but uh, you're a parent. I'm a parent. I've got two young daughters. What is something that we as parents can talk to our children about to help them, to teach them to avoid distracted driving? Or what's something that easy that we can start doing today? If you have very small kids, teach them young. Teach them from their elementary schools. Because if you keep inculcated, embedding that knowledge, that particular behavior in their minds that mom and dad do not pick up a telephone, mom and dad do not get distracted, just like the seatbelts. Kids automatically put the seatbelts on. So that is what the thing is that you have to start them young. And then as they grow, keep reinforcing. Parents have a very great responsibility, primary responsibility to make sure that as their kids are growing, they are also being taught distracted driving behaviors. And this is type of mental conditioning that I condone. Actually, this, is that, this type of mental conditioning is very good. Brainwashing is very good. And then once they have got their driver's license, just do not think that, oh, my God, my, my son or my daughter got the driver's license. Now I don't have to take them for the violin lesson or the football, football uh, practice. No, <laughs> that is where your responsibility increases exponentially. Right. Now they have this three-ton piece of hardware, a cannon in their hand, and if they mishandle it, that can explode. That's a great point. Great point. Vijay, yes. we're so grateful to, to have had you here on the program. Thank you so much for your work. I admire you and all the work that you're doing. Uh, his name is Vijay Dixit. He's the author of One Split Second. And if you want to uh, get more info on the book and figure out how to buy it, you can go to onesplitsecondbook.com. And uh, thank you so much once again for being on the program. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, our producer, Leanna Tan, has her tangent of the week. She's going to be talking about setting and meeting goals. When we come back, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Our producer, Leanna Tan, so wonderful. She often goes on tangents, though, and she has reached a milestone. She has reached her 50th tangent, 
And she met her goal of 50. Apparently, it was a goal of hers to reach 50. And her 50th tangent, appropriately, is about setting and meeting goals. Today is a monumental day for me. No, it's not my birthday or anniversary or graduation day. But it is the day that I reached my goal. I started doing these radio segments at the end of February, and there was a lot of stuff to figure out. I had a goal of getting 50 little tangents done by the end of the year. And here it is. I'm proud to present my 50th little tangent. You win! You know, it feels good. You know, it feels good to accomplish a goal. It feels good. An article from lifehack.org says that dopamine creates a sensation of pleasure when the brain is stimulated by achievement. It feels good. That's why it makes us so happy to reach a checkpoint or finish line. So, in order to bring you all a little more dopamine and a little more happiness... And in honor of my 50th radio bit, here are five tips to help you reach your goal. Figure out the why. It's important to not only figure out what you want to accomplish, but why you want to accomplish it. If you can see the benefits from the beginning, you'll have much more motivation to go through your journey to success when you bump into obstacles and setbacks. It can be as simple as... This goal will help me save time so I can catch my football game this weekend. Or as serious as, if I don't achieve this, I will possibly never have another career opportunity like this again in my life. You're fired! Two! Sketch it out. I say, the more details, the better. You have to be able to see the whole picture so you can anticipate setbacks and see what you'll need to do to reach your goal. Maybe that means moving around your schedule so you can get gym time in. Or planning out daily study time so you can get that A. Give yourself a time limit and have checkpoints. Having a time limit helps you to feel urgency and stay focused. This helps a lot at work when you have to turn in a deliverable. Maybe you give yourself half an hour to check and respond to emails, then an hour to plan out your next project, and another two hours to complete your project before lunch. Not only are you giving yourself time limits, but at the end of each of those time periods is a checkpoint. So you have small successes along the way, which will keep you motivated till the end. Learn tricks of the trade. Don't be afraid to ask for help and learn from others. It's all part of the process. Part of achieving your goals should be improving yourself. That way, you can see a difference at the end of your journey. Reaching a goal doesn't mean doing it all by yourself. And if you take the time to learn from those around you, you just might even surpass your goal. Celebrate. Whether that's taking a nap, buying yourself lunch, or posting it all over Facebook. Celebrating your successes makes you want to do it all over again. Make sure to recognize your accomplishments so that your brain and body get credit for all the hard work they've done. Rewarding yourself will make you want to jump right back to the drawing board and start another goal. So, as things start winding up in the holidays, don't forget to pace yourself. Remember the reasons behind your goals, and that it's okay to treat yourself to that eggnog once in a while. Well, may your goals be successful and your dopamine levels be high. I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is 
the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to hour number three of the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he is away sick. And I'm joined here this morning, as always, by Terry South, our producer, Sean O'Neill, who's running the board this morning and bobbing his head to this wonderful music, as well as Sadie Nielsen, who is chomping at the bit in the other room there to give us our news around the rest of the country, which we'll get to in a minute. I promise, Sadie, calm down. Today is December 7th, a day, as we said earlier, will live in infamy, as quoted by, well, as said by Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1941. It is Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. So this is a day that we can remember all those who perished in that in that tragic day and uh, just remember in general the sacrifices that those who serve our country abroad make every day for us. We're very grateful. Yeah. And uh, yeah, do you want to, what is I, that? I, I still have memories of going there last year um, mm. and just – I mean there's a whole the, – the, it's, it's now run by the National Park Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it's a, the, the memorial is and it, it covers a large area. Uh, there is a – and before you go out to the Arizona, there is actually a film that you get to watch. It's about 20, 30-minute long film. And it is it is it retells the the attack yeah. and everything that happened there, and it is just an amazing piece of American history to relive and to and to remember those whose whose lives uh, were lost there, and those who fought and and gave their lives for our country and who defended our country and are still there's not many of them around still right. today yeah. being at seventy five the seventy fifth anniversary of this, but uh, uh, we got to meet a survivor actually while we were there. Wow. He was what an amazing experience. Yeah, we got to. I, I'm glad my kids got to hear his story. Yeah, um, and he had a book there. We did. I mean, he was selling books, but uh, it's probably one of the only ways that he gets, uh, sure, uh, you know, money. Wow. Uh, but it's a. He was he was fascinating to to get to talk to and. Well, in that film you watched was probably a lot more accurate than the Michael Bay. Oh yes, movie that came out with so. Ben Affleck and. Kate Beckinsale. Yes. Um, but still, <laughs> at that place, if you ever uh, go watch the film Tora, Tora, Tora. Oh, that, I haven't seen that, that one actually yet. Is a, they, they credit that with a fairly uh, reasonable uh, reenactment mm. of what happened on uh, December 7th, 1941. Oh, I'll have to check that out. I've heard of it. I've just never it's, seen it's it. It's from yeah. the 60s. I, 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 the last time I saw it, I was a really little kid. But Yeah. Yes. It, it shows both sides, Japanese and American. Oh. Well... Thank you for that, Sean. Today is also a day that we celebrate the knowledge that Donald Trump is the person of the year, according to Time magazine. Do we celebrate that or do we just acknowledge it? Oh, I think that answered my question. <laughs> anyway, we do wish President-elect Trump well. We do hope that he can make changes and 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 help heal some of the wounds that have been felt by by people that have just felt wronged for so many years and uh, decided to to vote for change. So we'll see what happens. It's also Cotton Candy Day. So pull out your cotton candy and read your uh, copy of Time magazine 
and uh, read a little bit more about why Donald Trump is the person of the year, according to them. We'll get to some more fun stories, including a little battle in Iceland. Iceland versus Iceland. If that doesn't make any sense, we'll clarify that here in a minute. But first, let's get to the headlines with Sadie Nielsen and see what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? On Tuesday night, President-elect Donald Trump repeated his pledge to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And as Vice President-elect Mike Pence met with congressional Republicans, the big question was how long before the repeal takes effect, with options ranging from six months to three years. Also on Tuesday, the two major trade groups representing hospitals warned Trump and GOP leaders in Congress that repealing Obamacare could cost U.S. hospitals $165 billion by 2026 and force an unprecedented public health crisis. At Florida's McDill uh, Air Force Base for his final national security speech, President Obama on Tuesday looked back at his administration's progress in the fight against terrorism and outlined the work that still needs to be done going forward. Acknowledging that the threat of terrorism will endure, Obama emphasized the need to pursue a smart strategy that can be sustained. Detailing the foreign policy successes of his administration, Obama advised against offering false promises that we can eliminate terrorism by dropping more bombs or by taking up practices like torture or waterboarding that are not true to our laws. President-elect Donald Trump emerged from a meeting with SoftBank Group Corporation CEO Masayoshi Son on Tuesday with news that he'd secured a $50 billion uh, investment in the United States and 50,000 jobs from the Japanese billionaire, per a poll report. Trump called Son one of the greatest men of history and was quick to celebrate the deal on Twitter. Outside of Japan, Son is known for his purchase of American phone carrier Sprint in 2013. And finally, so I love puppies, but I really hate it when I babysit one of my friend's puppies and they pee all over the floor. It's really frustrating. But there is a dog trending on Twitter right now who apparently knows how to clean up his own mess. No. Yes. A Texas man's pit bull puppy is being applauded on Twitter for attempting to clean up his own urine. How about a potted? Was he a... a Potted. He was a potted, yes, yeah. with a wad of toilet paper. Um, Aislinn Hampton, 21, a Denton rapper who records under the name Billy Bands, posted a photo to Twitter showing the scene after he came home to his puppy, Pablo. Uh, he had peed on the bathroom floor and apparently attempted to clean it up himself. Uh, Hampton said Pablo is in the process of house training and must have learned from watching his owner clean up accidents with toilet paper. So it's a picture of this literally giant wad of toilet paper sitting on top of the pee. Wow. That the dog had just put there. And he said uh, he's done a lot of things that let me know he's pretty smart. So, so it sounds a smart like dog. Pablo does a better job of cleaning up his accidents than my two-year-old does. <laughs> that might be true. <laughs> and I'm guessing it's Pablo spelled P-A-W-B-L-O. Very close. What is it? P-A-B-L-O. Oh. Why isn't it Pablo? I don't know. But like that's really paws. creative. Yeah. Anyway, Sean O'Neill doesn't like my uh, my dog puns here. Oh, no puns on the paws, please. Uh, anyway, do you have dogs, Sadie? I do not currently, but once my husband and I graduate, we are planning to get a dog. Mm, I applaud you. Thank you. It's going to be a Vishla. They're great dogs. 
Sadie, as always, you knocked it out of the park. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, get one of those. I think that's going to be the – we had Caitlin Thomas the other day talking about the top gifts of 2016. I think that's going to be one for 2017, the self-cleaning dogs cleaning up after themselves. I'd pay extra for that if I wanted a dog. Anyway, I teased earlier a uh, a battle, an epic battle, Iceland versus Iceland. The island nation of Iceland said Thursday it is taking legal action against British frozen food chain Iceland over the right to use their shared name. Iceland's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said it has challenged Iceland foods at the European Union Intellectual Property Office. It says it is acting because the retail chain aggressively pursued Icelandic companies using the word Iceland in their branding. Iceland Foods holds a Europe-wide trademark registration for the word Iceland. Seems unfair. And the Nordic country's government said it was exceptionally broad and ambiguous in definition. In a statement, the ministry said the situation has left the country's firms unable to describe their products as Icelandic. The retailer, which has operated supermarkets across Britain for 46 years, said it would fight the claim. It said it does not believe any serious confusion or conflict has ever arisen in the public mind between the chain of stores and the volcanic Viking-founded nation. Wow, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I agree with there's no confusion because, Sean, you looked pretty confused when I said Iceland versus Iceland. Well, not confused. I was just wondering, okay, what the heck's going on here? <laughs> but, you know, if, you, if you're if you arguing over the word Icelandic, then okay, fine. Why can't Iceland use the word Iceland? That seems unfair. I can see the court papers now, mm-hmm. the filing, Iceland did, versus Iceland. Well, did Iceland not get their, you know, their uh, internet domain either? Were they, you know, if you go to Iceland.org, <laughs> is it? <laughs> that's a good point. The only thing I know about Iceland is that. Uh, the capital uh, is Reykjavik. Oh, I was going to say uh, the uh, the Mighty Ducks faced off against them in oh, the, mm-hmm. the Junior Olympic Games in D2, the mm-hmm. Mighty Ducks. Uh, if you ever want to see a very good, if you, if you're not planning on ever traveling to Iceland, uh, very good shots of Iceland, though, are available in uh, uh, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty. That was done by uh, Oh right, Ben uh, Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller. Very, very, so, very nice photography. And apparently, Iceland is very green, mm-hmm. and Greenland is very icy. That's true. Anyway, Terry, anything else important that we ought to be focusing on this this block? Burger King has a new food option for you. Oh, finally! Of not eating? No, <laughs> just it's not. <laughs> Here. Oh. All these companies have new food, but it's never here. It's oh. not available in it's the in United a foreign States. Foreign country. You have to tease us. Yeah, this one's in uh, Israel. It's uh, the Suffagani King. Okay. Is that hummus on it? No. Oh. It'll be sold for about $4. It'll be available through January 1st, the last day of Hanukkah. It's a Hanukkah themed oh. meal. Um, the Suffagani King is a whopper with savory donuts in place of the buns. So it's like a donut burger no Hmm. i've never been no don't put a donut on a hamburger (laughs) the name is a play for the hebrew word on donut which is suffaganiot i'm probably just massacring that but Hmm. uh apparently donuts are sold on every street corner in israel throughout the weeks leading up to hanukkah 
Okay. Wow. So they're out there. They're probably not the same kind of donut here. It's not the glazed sugar heart-stopping variety that we eat here in this country, but they're having donuts with their hamburgers over there. Well, here they could put it on a cronut. They could. Ooh. As the uh, the burger quote, I would try that. The burger quote proves that miracles still happen, according to <laughs> Burger King Israel, said on their Facebook page. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. <laughs> you know, yes, Al Michaels is selling. I kind of feel like Jerry Seinfeld. If it's so special, why isn't it on the menu all the time? Yeah. Because Why are they called specials? It's, if it's only tying into Hanukkah. It's only one time a year. In I other guess. news, a man in France, he had some relatives die and he inherited their house. And okay. they were kind of hoarders. Yes. Oh, okay. Now, if you think about it, you've seen some of these these hoarder TV shows and you walk in and there's just piles hey. of junk mm. everywhere. Garage sale. Some of the offices in this building <laughs> yeah. may resemble that. I'm not sure. We'll have to look. But um, Not mine. I said some, okay. not yours. You've cleaned yours out occasionally, maybe dusted and taken out whatever animals have crawled up and never mind. Okay. Um, <laughs> so what it says is the guy's going around this house looking at the old furniture and he finds $3.7 million in hidden gold. What? It was under the furniture, under the linen, in the bathroom. It was everywhere. It was under the floorboards. They lift them up, and there was some gold under there. Like gold bars? Well, they found 500 gold pieces, two gold bars, and 37 gold ingots, which are just like non-processed chunks of metal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in all, 3.7 million. they said I'm it's not it's, selling that. Yeah, they said it's close. Like, it weighed more than 200 pounds, reportedly bought between 1950 and 1960. Whoa. When they bought all Holy this. Holy cow. And that was their savings. They you see, there's an so we should be thankful for hoarders. Isn't that what we're supposed to get from this story? No, no, oh, no. Okay. Uh, here's, the, here's the kicker, though. The man has already sold his treasure to multiple buyers, but it's not quite the windfall that it seems. He owes 45% inheritance tax on the gold. Okay. Plus oh. three years of back taxes if his relatives hadn't declared oh. the gold. Mm. So he may end up with nothing. Boom, boom, ba, boom. Yeah. <sighs> so you may you may find something in the inheritance, but taxes will <sighs> take it from Blast. I just, I keep telling my parents, you're good, no debt, everything's paid up. Great. If it's just, if you, you know, if you walk out the door and it's zero, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Mm. Just go ahead. That's fine. Yep. Just don't leave me with debt. There's gold in them hoarder's house. If it is, I'm just going to act like I don't know who you are. Right. When they call, I'll be like, who? who? What are you talking about? What? <laughs> well, that's sad. But wow. That's, yeah. Well, I guess we're back to uh, not appreciating hoarders. There you go. That's too bad. I wanted I wanted something A good to hoarder appreciate them by. pays up their taxes and then leaves gold. That's probably the best kind of hoarder you can think of. So that's what you're learning from this. Yeah. Story. See, gold and paid taxes, you're good. They probably are. Co- <laughs> they probably have a collection of all of their uh, tax statements and receipts yeah, and bills and all that. Not throw a lot away. So, mm, but they just couldn't pay. Pay your taxes. Oh, well, two stories that teased us. Can't have that donut burger, and that poor man will not get to keep the gold that he found in the hoarder's house. Ah, well, we'll come back with some good news for you. In fact, when we come back from the break, we're going to be speaking with David Crystal, who is going to be talking to us about the gift of gab and how eloquence works. Hmm, sounds interesting. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live more eloquent lives.
Have you ever had to give a wedding speech or a business presentation, or even just had to retell a story in front of your group of friends and found yourself sweating bullets and fumbling for words? You might wonder how politicians, celebrities, and businessmen do it. How do they speak so smoothly and convey their message effectively? Well, today we have a world-renowned expert on the history and usage of the English language, David Crystal, joining us from Wales to discuss his book, The Gift of Gab, How Eloquence Works, and to teach us what eloquence is and how we can be better at it. Uh, David, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. It's a real pleasure. Nice to be with you. Thank you so much for being here. So, first of all, what is eloquence? Well, it's an easier concept than people think. You know, they, they, uh, they think that eloquence, as you've just been saying, is something for just the big politicians, you know, the Barack Obamas of this world, who use, who use language so efficiently. But actually, eloquence is a much more basic thing than that. It's for everybody. It's simply the effective use of language in a particular situation. So it applies to everything we do, from just uh, telling a joke or reporting a story or, you know, talking to your friends. If you can do it effectively and fluently, you're being eloquent. Okay. So now, why why is it so important to be eloquent? Or in other words, because you mentioned we mentioned here that, uh, you know, politicians, celebrities, businessmen, they they are eloquent. But certainly there are members of each of those categories that are not as eloquent, and they seem to do okay for themselves. So what? T- tell us more about the importance of being eloquent. Well, uh, eloquence is, is a matter of, of conveying your message most effectively to the people you're trying to get it across to. So whether it's a simple thing like just telling a story of what was on television or whatever it might be, you want to get the point across as effectively as possible. In, in a more uh, dramatic scenario, uh, like giving a political speech or just going to an after-dinner talk somewhere or giving a talk to some local club or, or even giving a, a, a homily in church or anything of that kind, uh, again, you, you want to get the message across in the most effective kind of way. And so, therefore, you have to choose the right kinds of words and don't make your sentences too long, and then make sure that the chunks of information you put across are capable of being picked up by the listener and assimilated without too much difficulty. You know, the best thing about eloquence, Jeff, it seems to me, is that when you're not eloquent, um, people notice and they, uh, they get uncomfortable. You know, I don't know, well, what was he saying? I, I didn't quite catch that. Uh, oh, do you think he could say that more clearly? Or what's he getting at? Right. You know, when people are reacting in that way, you notice it. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, the name of the book is The Gift of Gab, and in the book you talk about something called working memory. Talk yeah. to us a little bit more about working memory and what that is. Yeah, now working memory is absolutely fascinating. It's the amount of information you can hold in your head at one time without any difficulty. And this is the way to test it. Um, Anybody can do this at home uh, with a friend. You simply say to them, well, I might do it to you now, Jeff. Are you ready? Okay. All I want you to do is say what I say and then notice the point at when it starts to get difficult. Hmm. So if I say to you, Three. Three. Let's now say three, okay? <laughs> now, six, two. Six, two. One, four, three. One, four, three. Eight, one, six, 
817. 8167. Yes, it reminds me of that game Simon, you know, that with the blinking lights and you have to remember the order in which they blinked. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> right. Now, up to five, I gave you five to copy, and up to five, you didn't really have any trouble. But if I give you six and go eight, two, one, six, three, nine. Eight, two, one, six, three, nine. And suddenly it starts to become a bit of a strain, you know? And, it, and of course, I've just given you simple little words. Yes. If I gave you longer words, um, you would have even more trouble. You but know, that's, ne- so, that's so interesting because I'm always fascinated whenever I see a movie and, you know, somebody jot, you know, they jot off a, a telephone number really quick and say, okay, don't forget this number or don't forget the combination to this safe. And they're always <laughs> able to, to remember these ridiculously long numbers. And I always think it's so unrealistic. Oh, absolutely. And of course, language gives us little tricks, which doesn't allow us to remember longer sequences. So if we we chunk our language with a nice rhythm and intonation, and I say to you, 8614-9379, then of course, you're not going to have any trouble remembering that. Yeah, wow. There there is this, this... processing limit up to it's sometimes called the magic number five you know up to five units of information the brain can process very easily beyond that some people are very good at it of course some people can do more but beyond that most people find it a bit tricky and so that's a big test you see when you're when you're speaking in public like i'm speaking to you now uh, listeners will notice that every now and again i'm exaggerating it a little bit i'm speaking in chunks that are not very long. And you're doing the same, of course, because you're a professional broadcaster and you have a sense of uh, how to chunk your language so that it gets across well. Mm, This reminds me, too, of comedians. I'm always fascinated whenever I see a stand-up comedian. You know, obviously they benefit from having done the same routine countless times, but there's almost like a musical quality to the way that they do their routine. You know, they know when to pause. They know, yeah, just like you said, they know in what chunks to say parts of their routine. So that's, wow, that's fascinating. As, as, as they say in comedy, it's the way you tell them. Yes. <laughs> Indeed it is. It's the, it's the way you say things. It's another way of t- looking at eloquence. It's not so much what you say, it's the way that you say it. Right. And the technical term for this is delivery. Yes. Delivery, 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 as uh, a classical um, author once said. You know, it, that's the important thing. You can have the most boring thing to say in the world, but if you say it in a really enticing, exciting way, it becomes interesting. And conversely, you can have the most exciting concept in the world and say it in the most boring way, and it becomes dull. And, you know, that that's so interesting, too, because there are people out there who could probably write something very eloquent. But when it comes to delivering it, somebody else delivers it for them. They, they may be more eloquent in writing and not so much in their delivery of that message. Oh, that's, that's very true. Um, and over, over here, I've, I've never done this in the States, but um, over in the UK, uh, I often find myself um, talking to poets, uh, going around literary festivals and things like that. And the number of poets I meet who say that uh, they just don't like reading their poetry aloud because they're not very good at it. Mm. And, when, and when you hear them, they're right. And they often employ an actor, you know, to do the job for them. 
Right. Wow. So in your book, you also talk about value-added speech. What can you tell us about value-added speech? Well, value-added value is really... Eloquence is an artistic thing. It's not just fluency. Anybody can be fluent. And I can listen to them and say, yes, he's a fluent speaker of English. Presumably all your listeners um, have a fluent first language, whatever it might be. But eloquence is that little bit more. It's a bit like uh, drawing or painting. You know, we can all draw and paint something, I suppose. But doing it really well, giving that sort of value-added extra bit of... uh, excellence to what you've done is not something many of us can do. It's the same with eloquence. Um, We can all speak in a fairly natural kind of way, but then we learn to, we can learn to shape our speech, make it that little bit more effective by using tricks of the trade, like certain types of repetition and certain types of contrast and so on. So at the end of the encounter, the listeners say, I enjoyed that. You know, I enjoyed listening to that person. Uh, I, I may not have agreed with everything the person said, but it was an enjoyable experience. So in a, in a sense, eloquence is a sort of art form, and that's what I meant by value-added. So speaking of art, you know, a lot of art is so subjective. How subjective is eloquence? You know, for instance, something that might seem eloquent to me might not be so eloquent to you. So how subjective is it? Well, there's always an element of subjectivity in it. You're quite right there. But when we're talking about um, public speaking, which is really at the bottom of the notion of eloquence, uh, that's what most people are scared of. You know, most people are eloquent when they talk to one or two people in, in an informal way. But speaking, they say, I couldn't speak in front of a crowd. I couldn't speak in front of uh, 30 people or 1,000 people or whatever it might be. Now, that's when the subjectivity becomes objective, because if everybody in the crowd or in the audience responds in the same way, you know you've done a good job. And the example I use in the book, which I spend quite a lot of time analyzing, it's a bit of history now, I suppose, but that famous uh, victory speech of Obama back, uh, you know, eight years ago, yes, we can. And everybody remembers the yes, we can. And that's a very good example, because as soon as that kind of effectiveness comes across, the entire crowd cheers or claps or whistles or whatever it might be. And that's the point where it's no longer subjective. You know you've done a good job. Yeah, and you you bring up a good example of the way that people react when they're in an, an audience situation. Um, you know, you it almost seems like somebody's ability to recognize eloquence has an impact on those around them. Because, as you said, when when a few people start cheering, yes, we can, yes, we can, other people are, are going to join in. And, you know, we see we see examples of this on sitcoms when they throw the laugh track on there so that we know when we're supposed to laugh and when is some, when something is funny. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and this is the difficult thing now, isn't it? And, some, and for somebody like you, you know, presenting... Um, where you don't, you're on your own. <laughs> right. And, and this is the most difficult kind of eloquence of all, where, when there's just the microphone in front of you, and out there there may well be people saying, hey, I like that, that was really good, but there's no way you'll ever know. Right, exactly. <laughs> and plus we're on Sirius XM, and so we don't, we don't even really see the numbers. So, <laughs> yeah. 
But uh, <laughs> yeah. anyway, uh, yes, that kind of that kind of rapport, yes, um, in a listening audience, it's one of the best things. And and this is an important point to realise when you are speaking in front of an audience, as most of your listeners will do at some point or another, even if it's just a speech at a wedding, you know, or a, or a. Uh, a small talk in front of a, a, a little club or society, make sure that you foster that rapport. And the way to do that is to make sure that during the talk, at some point or another, you involve everybody. And it's done, quite simply, by looking around the room. By yes. making sure that at some point you make eye contact, not for long, uh, but with everybody that's in the room. And even if the people are sitting at the back, that doesn't matter, because all you've got to do is look towards the back of the room. Right. And everybody there will think you're looking at them. Yes. David, this is such a fascinating topic. I'm having a great time speaking with you. Uh, we do need to take a break, but when we come back, let's let's continue this discussion on eloquence and uh, maybe dive a little bit deeper into this and how we, just on an everyday level, can be more eloquent in our jobs, in our relationships, and, and so forth. We will take a quick break. We're speaking with David Crystal, the author of the book, The Gift of Gab, How Eloquence Works. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live, hopefully, more eloquent lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to... Back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson uh, filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away sick. We wish him well and, and hope he's back tomorrow. We've been speaking with David Crystal, who's a writer, editor, lecturer, broadcaster, and world-renowned expert on the history and usage of the English language. He is also the author of many books on language, including his most recent, The Gift of Gab, How Eloquence, How Eloquence Works, and the Oxford Dictionary of Original Shakespearean Pronunciation. Hmm. He is looking forward to the publication of a new book, Making Sense, The Glamorous Story of English Grammar in January. And uh, we'll give you, uh, we'll uh, put a plug in for your website uh, at the end of this interview. David, thank you so much for being back with us on The Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, I've just, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, uh, before we we went to the break, we were talking about subjectiveness and and the different types of, of eloquence, um, I, I wanted to – we've covered a couple of these. You mentioned in your book the five canons of rhetoric. We've already talked about a couple of them, memory and delivery. What are the other three canons of rhetoric that you can tell us about? Well, I, do you know, although I do talk about these classical criteria, the, the important thing to get across is that everybody's different – in the way in which they foster their eloquence. Uh, the important thing is to be yourself more than anything else. And this is another one of the canons, you know, be, be yourself. Um, and, and, of course, the, the best example of this is, is right now. Uh, how, I, I could not conceive of two people being more different in the kind of eloquence that they put across as... Barack Obama at one extreme and Donald Trump at the other. Right. Very, very different kinds of eloquence. Now, if eloquence is effective speaking, then 
looking at Donald Trump, you wouldn't want to say that he was eloquent in the same sense as Obama is eloquent. But in terms of effectiveness, the recent events have shown that it is a very effective strategy. And he, he did seem to be himself, and he did speak to a large number of people that felt like he was using their voice. And that's exactly the best way of putting it, Jeff. Yes, using their voice. There are two big characteristics of Donald Trump's style. Um, One is that he introduces into his speech a great deal of the colloquialisms and everyday phrases that you and I would use when we're speaking informally. Not now, when we're speaking pretty formally and carefully to each other, but, you know, if we go say, hey, I know, you know, you realize, hey, folks, look, listen, uh, all this kind of thing that comes into everyday conversation. You don't normally hear that kind of thing from a big top politician, but he uses them a lot. And the other thing he does is he repeats a lot. Um, He says the same thing in several different ways, which is, again, another absolutely normal everyday strategy. Uh, And I can say, look, believe me, look, look, believe me, and and so on, several times in an everyday chat. Again, I don't normally expect to hear this from uh, a top politician, but it's part of his style and evidently very effective. You know, and speaking of Donald Trump, um, we've we've seen it seems like we've seen different versions of Donald Trump. So. How does the way we speak change depending on on who we're speaking with? Because he seems to have different messages at different times. Yeah, well, we're all multilingual in our own language, really, to a certain extent, or multi-dialectal, I suppose. You know, we we grow up, uh, especially after we've been to school and are taught that the colloquial, natural language of the home has to be, we have to be more careful now and, you know, have to address people in a different way. In other words, we learn a more formal style of speech, and of course in writing too, but a more formal style of speech as well as the informal style. And then if we start traveling around, we realize that there are uh, you know, so many different facets to society, and each one has different norms, different regional dialects, different regional accents, and all of this. And gradually, if we become a really fluent master of our language, we end up learning uh, about an awful lot of these. And we adapt our speech to the circumstances, just like we change our clothes when we go to different circumstances. Now, the best politicians, just like the best public speakers generally, have have developed this to a very high degree. Now, I have no idea to what extent um, Mr. Trump uh, changes his style uh, consciously or... uh, with the advice of his speechwriters or whatever it might be. But I do know, having talked to some other uh, great you know, big speakers, that they, they do this an awful lot. I mean, the most famous one over here is Winston Churchill, who always used to mark up his speeches um, and, and write on them some of the little tricks of the trade that he knew he was going to use when he gave the speech aloud. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, there are a couple of examples of... of of public speaking in, in popular culture that uh, I think are key too as well. Like, for instance, I think of Jerry Seinfeld who mentions that the number one fear that people have is public speaking. The number two fear is death. So that means if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. And then, uh, uh, so, so well put. Now, how'd you get around that? Well, there are two big um, canons here and they are as follows. Preparation uh, and rehearsal. 
Uh, the first thing, you prepare it. Everybody knows how to do this. You just jot down on a piece of paper the points you want to make, and you uh, sort of get them into a certain order in your head, you know, that kind of thing, that sort of preparation. And then the other thing is rehearsal. Always rehearse. Now, by rehearsal, I mean um, recording, or getting somebody to listen to you if you can, and if not, listen to yourself using your iPhone or something of this kind, and say what you're going to say as effectively as you can, and then listen back to it. And that's when you'll notice things like you have an irritating mannerism that you didn't know you had, and most important of all, you'll realize how important it is to keep to time. Mm, yes. The biggest, biggest problem. People know at a funeral, as you say, or a wedding speech, I've got five minutes. You know, I went to a wedding not so long ago. I think I mentioned this in the book. And uh, I heard the best man say to the groom, how much time have I got? And the groom said, five minutes. The best man stood up and spoke for 23 minutes. Oh, my there. goodness. And everybody in the room was getting so distraught. You know, they weren't <laughs> listening to him anymore. Yeah. And when he'd finished, I heard him say to the groom, he sat down and he said, was that five minutes? <laughs> <laughs> and we don't have a good sense of time. You know, most people don't. They don't realize time is passing. So this, this is the thing. When you're rehearsing, check your time frame. And there's a good rule of thumb. If you're going to make 10 points, make five. Divide them by Ooh. two, and you'll probably find you suit your time frame well. David, those are those are excellent points, excellent tips. We I've really enjoyed speaking with you this morning, and thank you so much for coming on the Matt Townsend program. Uh, his name is David Crystal. He's a writer, editor, lecturer, broadcaster, and world-renowned expert on the history and usage of the English language. We've uh, just had a great time talking about eloquence this morning, and the name of his book is The Gift of Gab, how Eloquence Works, and to learn more about David's work, visit his website at davidcrystal.com. When we come back, we'll be speaking with our good brethren brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Now I'm a lot more conscious of of how I speak on the air. I'm a little self-conscious. Anyway, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live more eloquent lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away. We just spoke with David Crystal, who was talking to us about eloquence. And so we're going to turn it over to a couple of our good friends who are just as eloquent as they come. Jerem and Jason, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, it's eloquent, yeah. (laughs) So the, the Princeton voice also is the eloquent voice? Yes, Princeton. Lost to Brigham. An institute of higher learning, Jason. Mm. How flattering, Jeffrey. <laughs> well, welcome, guys. Hey, um, did you know that today is Cotton Candy Day? Every day is Cotton Candy Day in America. When was the last time you ate cotton candy? Like a month ago. Really? Yeah. It's a summer thing. Like I, I have not eaten cotton candy in, in probably That's why you two decades. Unless, unless you count Krispy Kreme donuts, which are essentially cotton candy. Ooh. <laughs> they just dissolve form. instantly in your mouth. I made you hungry, didn't I? I actually could now go for one of those. 
Oh, yeah. Jason's hey, in great shape, and he works out a lot, Jeff. So cotton candy is not in the regiment. So he lied to me. Or he hasn't had it in a long time, he said. He no, I have not had. I don't remember the last time. Yeah. And my kids don't want to eat it, so it's not like it's around. Your kids don't want to eat it? No, they like. I think they feel like it's weird. <laughs> Like, they look at it, and it's like, what? it doesn't look like something you would eat. Cotton candy's amazing. I, it's just like pure sugar. No, it's not it's like awesome. pure sugar. It is pure sugar. <laughs> it's a cloud of sugar. <laughs> it's amazing. I, I think it's more fun to just pour liquids on it and just watch it dissolve instantly. That's always fun. It's like popping bubble paper. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is awesome. Therapeutic. Awesome. Hey, also, there is a Christmas light display. You know those uh, Christmas light displays you can go to and tune into a radio station and listen to the music along yeah. with yeah. the lights? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, So apparently there's one that is going, it's all purple lights, and they're going to play Prince's Purple Rain. Oh, is it in cool. Minnesota? Is that where it is? Because that's where he's from. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, See? it is. Very good. You're so hip. Go Vikings. They do one of those. They do one of those in uh, in Minnesota for Prince, and then they also do a smaller version in Ogden for Weber State. Mm. Are you serious? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Ogden, really? The home of Utah State, according to Bony Fuller. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that I wish it was not uh, Purple Rain, but the song Kiss. Remember that song Kiss? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't have to be. Beautiful. That's actually That's pretty, not bad. Hey, hey. That is not bad at <laughs> wow. all. It's been a while since we had that kind of quality on this program. It's, it's a little tougher when it gets toward the end of the song. He's like, you don't have to be rich. He gets hey, pretty you, crazy. Dude, you've got You it. may have a future in that <laughs> if you're ever looking to impersonate that. There's, there's a cover band. There's like a dude that looks just like Prince and can shred like Prince. Oh, my goodness. Uh, in Vegas. Can you imagine the guts of somebody to get up in a karaoke bar and try to attempt that song? You've done it, though. Oh. Well, anyway... True or uh, false? You've done it? No. False. What? False. Dude, that's way too good of an impersonation <laughs> I have sung. I've it. sung along in my car, but that's, you know, different than... You need to do it. Stop <laughs> holding back, Jeffrey! <laughs> you know, speaking of singing in your car, I have always thought we should all... Because we all think we sound pretty good in the car. Yeah. Because we're singing You're along... Like, I could be on American We're Idol. singing along with other people who sound really good. True. But what we should do is we should record ourselves with head and we have headphones in so only like, we can hear like the music lay, lay right That's yeah and then record it. yourself and then go back and listen to it then you can accurately find out how good you are i'm scared of that i think we would all stop <laughs> singing in our car if we did that oh i hope not we need more singing in cars Anyway, we've got a couple of minutes before we need to let you two go. So what is going to be on your program this morning? Today's a big show. Uh, yes. Taysom Hill is in New York City for the Academic Heisman. He was one of 12 finalists. He didn't win, but it's cool that he was there. He was asked about his legacy and where he will end up ranking among the BYU quarterbacks, and he answered that question. So we'll give you his response, and we'll weigh in on where he, we think he ranks among all the BYU greats. Hmm. That's like saying whether or not you're a hero. If you know an interviewer says, right. "Are you a hero?" They ask that like, to Sully. I am Iron Man. Yeah, that's how I answer. That's, he says, yeah. "I am Groot." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Blaine Fowler will weigh in on that as well. Uh, we'll also talk with uh, Spencer Linton live from the Merritt Center. There's a women's basketball game coming up uh, in an hour and seven minutes. Yeah. Ooh, right after, exciting. yes, we Jason sign off. Shepard's sidelining that game, so he's going to run over the Marriott Center after this. Yeah, I'm doing this, and then that's why I, it, I know you can't see me, but I've, I've got the uh, I've got a tie on right it's now. Actually, got a tie on, which is not kosher for our code. It's here. it's saving time since I have to go next door for to do sideline stuff. So. Yeah, 
Okay, so Taysom Hill, we've got BYU women's basketball, we've got singing in cars mm-hmm. uh, with what, cotton candy. What Dave Rose said about the uh, maybe change of identity for the BYU men's basketball team. Mm. That's coming up as well. I thought I heard that he was uh, inviting us all to be patient with the team. Just be patient. Hang in there. He did not say those words luckily because there's almost nothing I hate more than being told to be patient. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me. To be patient. Jerem doesn't like to be told what to do. Yeah. Well, Jerem, I know that you miss uh, Dr. Matt, so I need you to be patient. He's going to be back. <laughs> he, he doesn't sing like Prince, like you. That was impressive. <laughs> like, I've got to say, that was pretty like, good. He is a doctor, but he ain't no doctor of songs. Uh, well, gentlemen, on that flattering <laughs> note, I'm going to have to let you go. Thank you so much for being on the program. We, we will talk to you again tomorrow. Knock Stay him sweet, dead. Jeff. Thank you, Prince. We'll see you. <laughs> oh, love those guys. They put on a good show. They put on a good show. I wonder if they'll be singing Prince now. Because that's the type of song that sticks in your head, you know? Oh. Favorite Prince song, Sean? Oh, put me on the spot. Um, I got to go with Purple Rain, I guess. Purple Rain, really? Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that also your favorite movie? That or Let's Go Crazy. Was that a movie? No, that or was, just part, that was okay. on the soundtrack to Purple Rain, oh. yes, but no. You know, he also did some work on the Batman soundtrack. Oh, yes. That the was, 1989 mm-hmm. Batman, I should say. Yes, the Tim Burton version of Batman. Yes. He did some good work. Yes, he did. Oh, Prince, we miss you. Or the artist formerly known as Prince. But then he went back to he Prince, He did I go believe. back to Prince, yeah. Yep. It's always good to go home. Anyway... Uh, Man, can you believe how quickly this year has gone by? It's almost Christmas. It's Christmas in, what, two and a half weeks, three and a half weeks? Mm-hmm. Have all your shopping done? Oh, heck no. <laughs> Never do. <laughs> I always give my lists to people way too late. Okay, Way you, after they've already purchased me do stuff. Do you write out a list or do you do the – see, our family does – since we have family back east, we do an Amazon – we do the Amazon wish list. Oh, great idea. Mm-hmm. I Oh, we, we can't talk about Amazon, though. Okay. It's a sore subject for me. Sorry. Since I moved to Utah, I have not been able to get the two-day prime shipping. Really? It's always three days or more. Hmm. Uh, anyway, they're not my heroes, suffice it to say. But speaking of heroes, we do always like to end the show with our hero story of the day. And today's another great one. Spending time with uh, family is an important part of Christmas, as we've just been talking about for many. And one kind-hearted man has reached out to help people who can't afford to get home over the festive period. Entrepreneur Peter Shankman hopes to spread some Christmas joy by sharing his spare air miles with strangers who contact him on Imager. The frequent flyer who has flown 350,000 miles during 2016 for work is encouraging Imager users to share their getting home for Christmas stories with him. This year I flew more than I ever have before and I am probably going to close the year out with about 350,000 actual flown miles. For comparison, the moon is 238,000 miles away, he explained. I pretty much live on an airplane and it's pretty cool. With the exception of missing my three-year-old when I'm on the road, I consider myself incredibly lucky to live the life I do. I'm not rich, not famous, but I do have one unique resource at my disposal, 
Because of how much I fly, I have a ton of frequent flyer miles. I usually give them to my assistant, my family, and my friends. Needless to say, this makes them very happy. He added, if you can't afford to go home for the holidays, I'd like to use my miles to get you home. So what's the catch? Mr. Shankman can only send people on a round trip within the United States, plus they can only travel on United Airlines. You can find out more details uh, by Googling uh, entrepreneur Peter Shankman. Wow. What an amazing thing. This guy is a hero. And just just picture the people that are at the airport that can't get on a flight that's sold out or it's delayed. Oh, man, just amazing to think about this guy. So, Peter Shankman, you are our hero of the day. If you want to get home but you don't have the cash to do so, look him up. Submit your getting home for Christmas story on Imager, and you could be a lucky winner. Wow, I feel like a lucky winner just listening just reading that story to you. Anyway, we hope that you have a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, and uh, make sure to spread the joy this Christmas season by being a hero. You don't have to give away your, your frequent flyer miles, but you can do little things each and every day that can make Christmas or this holiday season in general that much more special for those around you. That does it for the Matt Townsend Show. We'll return tomorrow, and we'll see if Dr. Matt has gotten over his sickness. Thank you for listening. You can uh, catch us on Sirius XM, BYU Radio. Uh, We've got a podcast that you can listen to after the fact, or you can stream us live. Thank you for being with us on the show. We'll talk tomorrow.